Jack. Levi. The Book Club from Hell. Hello everyone, this is Jeremy with The Book Club from Hell, and I am the reanimated corpse of Terence McKenna, and I will wander the earth for 40 days and accost strangers, telling them all about the wonders of the hemp industry, before dissolving into a peace sign-shaped cloud of bong smoke. We have a very special guest today. Levi and my friend Edward has joined us for an Evola episode. That's right, Julius Evola is returning, and we have read his final major work, Ride the Tiger, a survival manual for the aristocrats of the soul, first published in 1961. It is an intentionally practical work, a practical application of the teachings of tradition, intended for a select few differentiated men who, not feeling at home in this modern world of the Kali Yuga, are hankering for some connection to above. Evola outlines how such men can transcend these dark times and cultivate a connection to the world of being, analysing modern art, drug culture and jazz in the process, or, as he prefers to call jazz, syncopated dance music. It's truly delightful. Now for a practical note of my own. You'll probably get more out of this episode if you've already listened to our previous Evola episode, when Levi and I trudged through Evola's revolt against the modern world. The choice is yours. So, if you're feeling sufficiently differentiated and are awaiting your integration, I present to you Ride the Tiger. Enjoy. Yep, that's Book Club from Hell. (laughs) (laughs) So, Ed, it's good for you to, it's it's great for you to join us, take us up on the offer. Um, Jack, did you want to talk a little bit about, (laughs) give an intro to Ed? Since, uh, since Ed's one of our friends. He's about to introduce himself to all of you, including his address, banking details, and credit card number. Could you, <laughs> we'll could you give that away? Maybe your passport number, number as well. Yeah, Medicare. Oh, no, that's already been leaked. Don't worry about that. <laughs> we can upload a photo of your, of your house if you want. You can put it on <laughs> yeah. the Discord. Well, well, anyone who does go to the um, completely wasted effort of acquiring my tax file number or my <laughs> Medibank Medi details or my bank account will find it to be a completely fruitless exercise because I have no money and I'm a complete degenerate. But then again, I think that's absolutely expected of the first guest on your show. (laughs) I was about to say, that's exactly why you came crawling and begging to us to become part of the money-making machine. (laughs) The globe-spanning financial empire. i got to get in on this this podcast. (laughs) I mean, if I can't make my money here, I can't make it anywhere. Yeah, so Ed's um, Ed's a fantastic writer, and one of our one of our longtime friends, Jack and Ed, have known each other for like fifteen years now, almost something like that. Um, yeah, so we're excited that Ed's coming on, and he's got a exactly a very similar sense of humor to us. <laughs> so it's a good mix. Yeah, if if Ed voluntarily read Evola, that probably is the most descriptive and instructive thing you could learn about him. Well, I think at a certain point in your I think the first of your two Evola podcasts, you said, I think Levi asked Jack, would you recommend this to someone? And Jack said, I would recommend it to a very particular type of person. <laughs> and um, I felt that uh, <laughs> that directive was directed at me. Ed, Ed has told us that he Ed told me that he, he listened to the Bronze Age Pervert episode or something in the shopping center with, with his COVID mask on. And he was walking around. He must have looked like a psycho because he was laughing in the middle of, in the middle of the shopping center. 
poster with the mask on, <laughs> just looking demented. <laughs> I think that's probably true of all the episodes that I've listened to because I always listen to them in a sense in public because it's usually when I'm driving yeah, or like when I'm shopping. Smashing. You should always do it. And in I look like a complete psychopath. I mean, look, it's probably, I'm probably a danger to self and others on the road when I'm listening to this <laughs> podcast. I did actually listen to the entire audio book of, um, I think in one weekend I listened to 36 hours combined of your podcast, uh, <laughs> punct- punctuated by listening to the audio book of Mike Mars harassment architecture. And I was actually sitting outside, I was at a stoplight. And I had my windows down and Mike Mars' <laughs> book blaring. And as I as I was doing it, I thought, sh- should I turn this down? Because he's currently saying something highly anti-Semitic. But then I thought, what would Mike Mars do? So I turned it up. <laughs> That's a fantastic algorithm for life. What would Mike Mars do? What? <laughs> Can we get one W-W-M-D. of those fish stickers? You know, like the What Would Jesus yeah. Do stickers? But it's a book club from hell and it's Mike Mars instead. Mm. Gothic violence dude on it. <laughs> Yes, so it's look. It's an absolute pleasure <laughs> yeah, to be um, joining the, uh, the, uh, the 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 internet's two foremost uh, anthropologists internet or anthropologists. Hist- or historians of unorthodox ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Ed, could you tell us uh, any of your um, intellectual influences that you uh, that have had to? You mean happen? aside from Julius Evola and Mike from Mar? Hello, <laughs> Mike Mar. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a sense, I feel like um, listening. The point at which I started listening to this podcast was almost an intellectual year zero, where I could just put everything I'd learned in the past aside and only build a self up entirely constituted of very sound intellectual theories. <laughs> um, more, more seriously, um, I'm not sure what intellectual credentials I have, if any, to be um, joining this podcast. But then again, I don't think you guys have many either. The so fewer the fine. better. Negatively correlated with performance. I guess one interesting thing I would say that, in contrast to Jack and Levi, I come from an explicitly non-scientific background. So, um, if, <laughs> intentionally non-scientific. Intentionally non-scientific. Studied Chinese <laughs> medicine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I studied S's an arts a, degree. Ed's an SE5 <laughs> practitioner. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> you will. In a few weeks, you will know what the SE5 is. <laughs> Um, I guess my formal credentials would include an arts degree, um, insofar as that's a credential, and a Juris Doctor, insofar as my having done it um, is a credential at all. I think it's more a condemnation of the University of Melbourne for having so certified me than anything else. Uh, outside of that, I guess I write quite a lot. Well, no, I don't. I write quite a lot. I've written a fair amount on politics and to essays, columns for. Um, lamentably mainstream publications like Quadrant, The Spectator, The Australian, blah, blah, blah. Um, I don't know. I guess my political view is probably the same as you guys, but you guys don't actually delve too much into your own. So, you know, yeah. I, should, I won't... Um, I'll endeavour not this to uh, the, the... let my latent uh, fascist sympathies uh, bloom <laughs> to full efflorescence. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good to have you. Uh, I'm, I've been looking forward to getting you on the podcast. I think I think you'll enjoy it. Um, cool. So I'll let you guys talk. Levi out. Levi, well, I'll, I'll ask questions every now and then, but I'm happy to chill. I didn't read this, this week's book. But you, you did read Revolt Against the Modern World. And I feel like Revolt Against the Modern World helped me a lot in understanding Ride the Tiger. Well, that was At least in some of the parts. Just... When he started talking about the metaphysics of sex, then I, I definitely felt my lack of Evola knowledge on that one because that seemed to be largely based on an Evola book that I haven't read. <laughs> I am te- I am tempted to read that one though. 
to dive further into the Evolaverse. Yeah, temptation so, to read uh, more Evola is probably not something that I would uh, say has resulted from my having read, having read Ride the Tiger. Um, it was an interesting experience. I think after listening to your two guys' Evola podcast, I can't say I listened to all of the second one, Jack talking <laughs> to himself, because if Evola weren't disjointing enough, Jack just answering non-existent questions was even more disjointing. <laughs> But I was excited. That was the uh, best episode. That was the best episode. Uh, All of Jack's solo episodes are the best. <laughs> I, I was excited by the prospect of reading Evola, and I'm also not one for reading any book longer than about 300 pages. And to be honest, I skimmed through a fair amount of this one. But this is a relatively short book, and um, at least from the title of it, um, a survival manual for aristocrats of the soul, I thought, well, this is a practical Evola, sort of the the how to do traditionalism. So I thought that's um would be an interesting place to start. But I must Evola say standards. that this is practical. <laughs> this is extremely practical. I mean, it was quite it was reasonably easy to read in in, in most parts, but also it just smacked of the sort of continental philosophy that I really had quite enough of in, in my arts degree. Um, although it was refreshingly right-wing. <laughs> uh, with, this, with this book, it is, it's, it's well-written. Evola writes clearly, considering his subject matter and how, how much of a space cake he is, he writes remarkably lucidly. We can probably just go through chapter by chapter, almost, because each chapter builds on the subsequent chapter, in addition yes. to his, his broader body of work, but I'm not covering the other I don't know, 24 or 25 books that he wrote during his lifetime. Was this yeah. the last book he wrote? Well, I'm not Actually, sure. I was going to ask you about, about that, because yeah, this book this was written was in... the last thing he wrote. It was written in 1960, and I think... Um, some of that historical experience must play into the actual tone of the book itself. Because what I was surprised about, or maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, but in the first uh, chapter or two when he's introducing it, he's quite explicit, maybe more explicit than I would have gathered from your discussion of Revolt Against the Modern World, which I think was, was that pre-war. But it seemed that he'd completely removed himself from the, possible, from the possibility of any kind of uh, political program existing today or then today so jack would you say that it's this book was that that, that historical experience actually uh informs the evola of 1960 as opposed to the evola of revolt against the modern world hard to say even in revolt against the modern world he seemed to mostly advocate for for cultivating an internal life or an internal connection to above i think is probably a more evolian way of putting it rather than trying to directly influence the politics of his day. I think Revolt Against the Modern World was post-war, or post-World War II. Oh, was it? Right. And by... He, he definitely fell out of love, if he ever had been in love, with the fascist movements of Europe, because he felt them to be insufficiently traditional, and had, had a real problem with what he described as materialistic totalitarianism, rather than an organic empire. He was much more of a Holy Roman Empire kind of guy than a, a Nazi Germany man. Yeah, this, 
This book, what he ultimately seems to be advocating for is just dropping out of the world and cultivating a connection to to a higher plane through well we'll get into how he how he says you should do it. I re, I, I really want to stress by Evola standards this is remarkably practical. However, not 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 a practical manual for any of us three because he makes very clear from the first chapter that this is for a very particular type of person. I would say that it is extremely practical in the sense that um, you can judge its practicality by the title itself, you know, Ride the Tiger, because you know, <laughs> this is not a title without a meaning. You know, he opens up the first two chapters of the book by saying, at this point in time, uh, in the Kali Yuga, there are sort of uh, three approaches <laughs> one might take. Uh, yeah, let's assuming that the Kali Yuga is a, a tiger, um, a fairly nefarious animal. He says, yeah, you might be able to fight the tiger. He might be able to run away from the tiger. But being a man of practical wisdom, he says, the best option is in fact to ride the tiger, literally ride the tiger until that point in time at which it gets exhausted, falls down, and you can kill it. And so he says, analogously, we must ride the uh, indefinite Kali Yuga until it gets tired. And then we can be the differentiated man, as he phrases it, can be in a position of opportunity to strike and kill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was really disappointed. I thought this would actually be a manual on circus tricks. I thought I'd be able to learn how to be the world's strongest man, ride tigers, walk the tightrope. But no, he's just started talking about esotericism and all sorts of weird shit about fascism. I was very disappointed. I gave it one star on Amazon as a result. I just thought it was falsely advertised. <laughs> Did you actually go into Amazon and give it one star? I was Please hoping I had to learn how to do a headstand. No, I, 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 I bought this off Booktopia. I didn't get it on Amazon. I wonder who, what his estate is doing with this, this uh, <laughs> book sales. Do you ever the... have kids, though? He complains Mate. a lot. We'll get to his oh, section on no, having children. Many, many children. That would be consistent with his ideology, wouldn't it? Have had a harem. No, no. He, he explicitly women. says that you should not have kids. That really, <laughs> he was an antinatalist. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> hmm. That's strange. I wouldn't have picked it. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but... he's an Italian. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jack. So um, after so after the initial. Uh, chapter or two it opens up it situates us in the Kali Yuga he does say that you know one might uh, seek to take a more practical let's say more active traditionalist practical posture in the hope that the Kali Yuga might die within our the age might die within our lifetime and therefore we'd be able to strike but he says that you know this is not practical you know unlike the rest of his philosophy this isn't practical so, uh, so, <laughs> so, what could you could you describe what is the differentiated man and what is the justification for living as a differentiated man uh, does? Because one of the things that I found confusing during the book is that he sort of comes at the idea of the differentiated differentiated man quite tangentially. Mm. He talks about it with respect mm. to various different authors, political movements, spiritual movements. Um, drugs, uh, music, etc., etc. But uh, as far as I know, he doesn't really define it head on. But what is the differentiated man, and what is his role in this point in time, so far as you can tell? Yeah. So this this book is written very explicitly for a particular type of person. Evola basically just 
gatekeeps almost everybody who reads it, or perhaps everybody who will pick it up, by saying this is only written for a particular type of person, and this is the only type of person who who really is a good candidate for being a tiger rider, who might contemplate <laughs> becoming a tiger rider without it being totally ridiculous. So this is the sort of person will, as you said, he he gets at the type of person who is a potential tiger rider fairly tangentially. He spends a lot more time describing how this person would become oriented to above rather than telling you exactly what sort of person would be the ideal candidate. Maybe it is a a matter of if you have to ask, then you're not this person. But there's a quote from the first page. So Evola says, I have in mind the man who finds himself involved in today's world, even at its most problematic and paroxysmal points. Yet he does not belong inwardly to such a world, nor will he give in to it. He feels himself, in essence, as belonging to a different race from that of the overwhelming majority of his contemporaries. Yes. And with, with, this, with this particular type of man, this is not a... And I, I don't say man accidentally. It's, uh, it, it's only a man. This type of man is not the sort of man who will fight against society. Evola does mention that there are certain people who will fight against society, even in losing positions that can't possibly win. And this book isn't written for them. This book's written for the type of person who will rather turn inwards and cultivate a connection to the transcendent. And that connection to the transcendent will be entirely esoteric. <laughs> as in, it, it's, it's an internal connection to the world of being. And if these terms don't make sense to you, dear listeners, I encourage you to, to listen to our episode on Revolt Against the Modern World by Evola, where we do discuss these things. And I expect that some of the reason why this book made much more sense to me than to Ed is because I've read Revolt Against the Modern World and I've become sufficiently numb to Evolian weirdness to the point where him discussing connections to above and esoteric doctrines of the transcendent makes quite a bit of sense okay good but can i can i can i interrupt jack i mean you say that when i was reading it i was thinking okay well this makes this is certainly coherent in his use of terms but i wasn't sure whether the terms he was using when he says for instance orient yourself towards the above or when he invokes all these fairly vague terms i wasn't sure if it, it was a matter of my not knowing something that he has previously explained that would give content to it or he simply never defines it and that's just about it so is there a certain amount of content uh, that's given to these terms like for instance what is what are the criteria that govern a differentiated man is that something that you learn from revolt against the modern world so Specifically, the criteria governing a differentiated man are not explicitly discussed in Revolt Against the Modern World. <laughs> Quite a few of the terms of, say, an orientation to above are, are discussed. So the problem is not that you're not understanding Ride the Tiger. The problem is that he's just referring to other books that he's written. <laughs> and without that background knowledge, this book will make less sense. The differentiated man I don't think is really discussed in Revolt Against Modern World because Re Revolt Against Modern World is, is more... It's discussing things like how the world of being and world of becoming relate to each other. 
and how people in an ideal trad society might access the world of being. And those, those people, later on in this book, he describes why things like initiation rituals in a true metaphysical sense are impossible today because of miscegenation. Mm. And and <laughs> and the race mixing, yes, <laughs> yeah, it's race mixing. As the, this is book club from hell. We always discuss okay, okay, race. Okay, okay, so here's 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 an idea. All right, I, I'm I'm dumb and I'm not an Evolian expert. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Neither of us, no, none of us are. <laughs> Could you imagine getting a a, a PhD, PhD from one of those quack universities in, in like those alternative universities? Like fucking what's that? Uh, what was his name? Who uh, Robert Anton Wilson went to one of those fucking dog shit <laughs> alternative <laughs> universities, <laughs> and um, he got some garbage PhD in nonsense. PhD in nonsense. Uh, you could get a PhD, which later in became Prometheus Rider. Yeah, which later became Prometheus. <laughs> So here's my idea. I'm to you, to you and Ed. So I didn't read this book. I'm going to go through All some right. of our previous um, targets. No, yes, no. <laughs> Featured authors. <laughs> and I'm going to ask to let's create a, a Wittgensteinian uh, web of associations and say you give me a guess about. I'll say a name and you say whether or not you think this is a differentiated man. And, uh, okay, mm. number one, Bronze Age pervert. No. No? No. What phallic Man. Uh, I would agree. However, yeah. Phallic, phallic Man phallic is from man. Revolt Against the Modern World, I think. Yeah, I would man. agree. He's a phallic man. He's too attached to the earthly chthonic urges. Um, <laughs> he doesn't have that requisite <laughs> level of intellectual cerebral differentiation. I mean, yeah, because he, he likes going out in the sun... Um, his podcast is called Caribbean Rhythms. I mean, I don't think Evola would do anything so crass as to tie himself to the rhythms of a particular geographical space and time. <laughs> Particularly okay, if uh, it has a Lemurian origin. <laughs> All right, you win in the terms. I don't know. What that Lemurian? Lemurian. It's derived no, from. No, remember all, in Revolver in the Modern World, he gave, he gave like the Evola. Geography lesson where he talks about how yeah so there was Hyperborea in the North Pole, yes, I which until until <laughs> they engaged in race mixing and it was knocked off the the Earth's axis of rotation was a really good spot. Then there was also Jack Atlantis, which was good until it sank because they they miscegenated and practiced Titanic black magic. And then there was Lemuria, the southern continent, oh, which was right. always chthonic and feminine and earthly, Forgive me, I, which is I where non-white people judgment. came from. <laughs> yeah, so that's a no for Bap. <laughs> that's a no for Bap. He's too Lemurian. Um, Unabomber. I think Ted, the, Mr. the most important criterion for the differentiated man in Evola's telling, at least in our age, in the Kali Yuga, is that it's someone who has some latent ability to to cultivate in themselves transcendence. Okay, okay, that's a good one. Okay, so then, no, genuinely, Ted Kaczynski. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I see where Jack's coming from, um, but but also what what I found um, disturbing <laughs> was the uh, element of subjectivity that seemed to be introduced by his by the notion that the reader might find himself to be that differentiated man. I just found it that that left it a little bit too open, such that you might think that someone like 
Ted Kaczynski would be a differentiated, differentiated man. But I just don't think Kaczynski spent enough time on serious pursuits, like finding symbolic portals to the otherworldly, and instead spent time <laughs> on absolutely frivolous pursuits, like what do you get his PhD in? Some kind of applied mathematics or... No, no, he uh, he did his engineering degree. Yeah. Okay, right. But he yeah. did his PhD in, in uh, mumbo-jumbo. But he, but he was very much tied to the world. I mean, he, he was... Uh, what he advocated some kind of... Uh, oh, I can't remember the term, but, you know, hut-dwelling, separationism, anti-technologism. The anti-technologism bit, yes, but I just don't get the impression that Kaczynski spent enough time looking inward... In spe- he, he was actually extremely outward in terms of mailing bombs to people. Where uh, I just mm. don't think he cultivated the um, aristocratic soul. Okay, well, in that case, what about Terence? I'm going to have to punt personally on this one because I still haven't listened to your Terence McKenna podcast, <laughs> and that's because I look at his hair and I intrinsically hate him. <laughs> Jack, what do you reckon about, cause, uh, about McKenna? Do you reckon McKenna would have a bit of soul aristocracy? No, definitely not. <laughs> Evla, so Evla me- has a, a Terence McKenna chapter where he complains about drug use. Oh, okay. And so the the criticisms he has of drug use uh, could be leveled against Terence McKenna. <laughs> <laughs> so, of all the male authors or writers that we've had on this show, you don't think a single one of them would pass the criterion for Evla to be uh, an aristocratic? I really soul? don't know who I'm, would who ooh. would pass muster in Evla's eyes. I'm struggling, except for, except for Julius Evola. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say this. Yeah, I mean, except for him. You guys, you guys obviously would know much better than I. But one could make a, a case for Iona Selkie, insofar <laughs> as she rotated around Don in a uh, <laughs> continues to rotate <laughs> a quantum multiverse rotation, and and she following, uh, following she had the ascetic path of the lover. <laughs> <laughs> But she had access to other worlds, like talking to dolphins. I'm not sure if um, Evelyn mm. talks to dolphins yeah, at she any did point. Tr- transcendent dreaming. But she, but she was both appropriately subordinate, appropriately rotating, and appropriately telepathic or magical. Now, I'm not saying that she is an Evolian. I don't think she would describe herself as an Evolian, <laughs> at least so far as I can tell from what I've listened to. You know, but she's off the top of my head. That's. One of the more plausible cases. I mean, I think there might be an intersection between those who appreciate her writing and those who appreciate Julius Evola's writing. That is a profound uh, observation, <laughs> Mr. So, Ilona Selka's main <laughs> drawback Selka. in terms of being the Evolian differentiated man is that she's a woman. Her husband, <laughs> however, Don Paris PhD, might, might, be. might be our best candidate. But what if, but what if I would have put it to you this man. way, Jack? What if, what if Don died and she threw herself on the funeral pyre? Would that make her the, if not a differentiated man, as ennobled as it is possible for a woman to get? Evelyn does, in this book as well, quite, quite positively refer to the practice of sati where... Hindu widows would throw themselves on their husband's funeral pyre. So I imagine he would quite like that. So if Don Paris PhD were were initiated in some way, if he were able to escape the second death, then Ilona Selka, in throwing herself on his funeral pyre by following the ascetic path of the lover, would actually be ontologically transformed by Don's integrated, by his initiated substance of being 
So, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> which would be quite special. That no. that really would be something quite special. Um, can I can I ask you guys a question? A question. We've so we've not clarified at all what the differentiated man is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was wondering, what is the Kali Yuga exactly, according to um, according to Ebola? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> the Kali the Kali Yuga. Um, I'm going to punt to Jack on this one because I'm actually blanking on the particular myth to which he's referring. As in, it's the age of Kali, so, but she has some qualities, doesn't she? Yeah, mo- most pertinently to Evola that she's she's female. <laughs> so Evola subscribes to a a cyclical view of history where history history always starts with a golden age, which is great. It's a world of tradition. It is where the world of becoming that we inhabit is in communication with the world of being. We live in a society with a strong caste system within an empire, and everything ties back to a priestly warrior king in whom all all spiritual and physical authority is vested. And from him emanates a connection to the world of being that permeates this strong caste system that allows everyone to have an intensely meaningful existence in an objective sense. Whenever he uses the term objective, he really means relating to the world of being. And so, and history is always a history of degradation. You get the Golden Age, which degrades to the Silver Age, to the Bronze Age, there is a heroic revival, and then you have the, I think it's the Iron Age. <laughs> and he'll, he, he compares that. So that's the, uh, I think, the ancient Greek naming convention of the stages of history. Kali Yuga is from the Vedic tradition, I think, which is basically the same as it's the Dark Age, the final age, when everything's shit, we have no connection to the world of being, we have no true empire, we have no god kings, everything's (laughs) awful. But the one good thing about it, well, there are a few things to recommend it, but one, when it ends, we'll have a period of indeterminate length between cycles which will eventually lead to another golden age. But also in the Kali Yuga, because it is the greatest test of a person to maintain a, a trad lifestyle during the Kali Yuga, it is when the most ennobled souls might rise. Yeah, so um, just to, to, to offer some context, um, on page nine of the text, he, he, he uh, discusses the Kali Yuga. He says, In the classical world, it was presented in terms of humanity's progressive descent from the golden age, to what Hesiod called the Iron Age. In the corresponding Hindu teaching, the final age is called the Kali Yuga, Dark Age. Its essential quality is emphatically said to, said to be a climate of disillusion in which all the forces, individual and collective, material, psychic and spiritual, that were previously held in check by a higher law and by the influences of a superior order, pass into a state of freedom and chaos. The texts of Tantra, have a striking image for this situation, saying that it is the time when Kali is, quote, unquote, wide awake. Kali is a female divinity symbolizing the elementary, primordial forces of the world and of life, but in her lower aspects, she is also presented as a goddess of sex and orgiastic rites. In previous ages, she was sleeping, that is, latent in the latter aspects, but in the Dark Age, she is said to be completely awake and active. So females being awake, that's where we run into trouble. 
Yeah, that explains a lot. <laughs> I, this is a, this sounds to me like a coherent explanation of the gynocracy <laughs> and uh, the same Western <laughs> civilization over the last hundred years. Unfortunately, so. <laughs> I don't think Evola uses the term gynocracy in this book. He does talk about gynocentric civilization, though. So that's a, <laughs> it's a consolation. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so, Jack, Jack, having having rigorously mm. defined what the differentiated man is, and having rigorously defined what the Kali Yuga is, should we get into the discussion of nihilism and the disillusion of European morals? <laughs> Before we do that, I just want to finish out this section on of us um, offering a rambling preamble <laughs> to the meat of the book. <laughs> by saying, by giving an overview of what he, of how he thinks one should conduct themselves in in these these final days, where he he really advocates for stepping back from the world and letting the world burn itself out. On page ten, he says, "When a cycle of civilization is reaching its end, it is difficult to achieve anything by resisting it and by directly opposing the forces in motion. The current is too strong." one would be overwhelmed. The essential thing is not to let oneself be impressed by the omnipotence and apparent triumph of the forces of the epoch. These forces, devoid of connection with any higher principle, are in fact on a short chain. One should not become fixated on the present and on things at hand, but keep in view the conditions that may come about in the future. Thus the principle to follow could be that of letting the forces and processes of this epoch take their own course while keeping oneself firm and ready to intervene when the tiger, which cannot leap on the person riding it, is tired of running. The Christian injunction, resist not evil, may have a similar meaning, if taken in a very particular way. <laughs> One abandons direct action and retreats to a more internal position. Yes. And much of this book yeah, is, is giving context to and practical advice for how to cultivate this esoteric internal position where, where a person today, even if they can't be metaphysically initiated like might have been possible in previous ages, they at least they exist in, a, in some sort of posture with relation to above or the world of being, to a higher or objective world in Evola's eyes, such that events might transpire to allow them to become ontologically transformed. <laughs> there are so many terms we're using here that if someone <laughs> hasn't listened to the earlier ever, ever <laughs> we're probably really confusing. And I, I can't be bothered rehashing everything we talked about in the revolt. This is just impetus to go back and, and listen to the first half of the, uh, of, uh, of revolt against the one world. <laughs> well, this is impetus to read Evo's entire over... <laughs> <laughs> all 27 books or whatever read all of them did he anyway, really write as, that as Ed he wrote books <laughs> he wrote yeah he wrote like 25 or 26 books or something. Oh, he wrote a lot the guy didn't die soon enough <laughs> <laughs> yeah so the the next chapter is part two in the world where god is dead european nihilism the dissolution of morals this part I actually quite enjoyed. Most of this is a discussion of Nietzsche. And it's quite, it's quite fun because it's a combination of actually quite 
quite a clear description of Nietzsche's, some of Nietzsche's philosophical beliefs, some criticisms of Nietzsche, and then combined with Evolian wackiness. So if someone finds Nietzsche interesting, I'd recommend European nihilism, the dissolution of morals in Ride the Tiger. It's quite fun for a particular person. Yes, yes. Um, now, just for our audience, Levi has uh, left the room, having uh, chaperoned me into the uh, august uh, cultural world of the book club from hell. So, um, <laughs> so, so, so it's just me and Jack from uh, here, here on in. So, uh, Jack, he talks about, yeah, he makes lots of reference to Nietzsche, and he seems to take as his point of departure the notion that God is dead, which I think every single liberal arts undergraduate will be familiar with. Um, but it seems to me that uh, many sections of this book were taken up by fairly conventional critiques of people like Nietzsche and then late, later Sartre and Heidegger, as well as critiques of the, um, I guess, more plebeian impulses of people like the Beat Poets, um, <laughs> Jack Kerouac, and so on and so forth. So, but would it be fair to say that he does take uh, Nietzsche's dictum that God is dead seriously? And what does he uh, deduce from this fact if he does in fact take it seriously? So from, from someone who's read a few books by Nietzsche but has by no means studied them in any depth, Nietzsche's idea of the death of God was basically that we had this, this idea of God existing which underpinned our moral systems at least in, in the West, and that we, we, we killed him. He bled to death under our knives, I think is how he put it in the... <laughs> I think it was the Antichrist, I forget. Where we, we've undermined this belief in God and in doing so have undermined the, the moral certitudes that we once might have had. As arbitrary as they were, we still believed in them quite absolutely. And so now having removed God, we're in this vacuum of belief that either we continue on in the, the pantomime forms of Christian morality without a belief in God, which much of, much of the Western world does, mm. or we can try to revaluate values and make values of our own. And so Eveler in this section takes that idea of the death of God and runs with it and in that aspect, I don't think he's saying anything that outrageous. He's basically saying that we live in no. we live in morally confusing times where we're running on the fumes or the shape of a Christian belief that we no longer hold. And this has led to nihilism in many in many respects. And Nietzsche's project was in part how to overcome that nihilism. Evola, Evola too wants to overcome that nihilism, however, comes at it from a pretty different perspective or ends up in quite a different place to Nietzsche. But Evola, I think, agrees with Nietzsche's diagnosis that we've, we've killed God and have reached this point of nihilism. However, Evola's belief was that it's not this, this arbitrary belief in a Christian God that we've killed. Evola believes that we originally had what he calls objective beliefs in the world of being, in this, this unchanging spiritual realm that exists anteriorly to our 
our world of becoming, this mundane existence, and that through, through the stages of history and of involution and degradation, we've lost contact with that. And it's really that loss of contact with the world of being or of an, an objective higher reality that's the cause of our nihilism. He says on page, page 16, the death of God is an image that characterizes a whole historical process. The, fa- the phrase expresses unbelief turned to a daily reality, a desacralization of existence, and a total rift with the world of tradition that, beginning in the West at about the period of the Renaissance and humanism, has increasingly assumed the character of an obvious and irreversible state of affairs for present-day humanity. Yes, I think it's um, I think it's interesting that you brought that up because uh, I was going, I was about to ask, you know, whether or not uh, he views Nietzsche's dictum that God is dead as the culmination of a much earlier uh, lapse into degradation, because obviously the sort of God that Nietzsche was referring to is more of a theistic god, or at least I would historically assume so, whereas Evola would surely think that uh, we had removed ourselves from the higher things at a much earlier point. So, But when he turns to Nietzsche, I think he makes a fairly... Uh, I wouldn't call it a unique criticism, but he, he doesn't like Nietzsche insofar, insofar as I can tell because Nietzsche remains... A little bit too humanistic for him and also can't help but <laughs> posit some kind of objective standard like he says at some point that you know, Nietzsche of course just says okay well we've gone God is dead we've gone beyond good and evil so therefore let's just posit the will let's posit a sense of uh, self-affirmation and creativity but Evola says if you don't have any objective standard of good and evil or any uh, uh any standard by which to measure anything, you may as well posit anything as as you might posit uh, Nietzsche's idea of the will to power. So, is am I reading that correctly? Is that his sort of point of departure from Nietzsche? Because I think he makes more or less the same criticism about existentialism in general and Sartre and so on and so forth um, for quite a few chapters. Yeah, I think that's the the basic outline of his disagreement with Nietzsche. His basic disagreement with every philosopher that he disagrees with in, in this book, with the exception of René Ganon, <laughs> is that these people don't acknowledge that there is this underlying reality anterior to our world that happens to be shaped in exactly the way that Evola says it's shaped, <laughs> and he doesn't really give you <laughs> a reason to agree or disagree with that. Somewhat like Nietzsche, actually. Nietzsche tended to just say stuff, and if you agreed, it was great. And if you disagreed, then you didn't really have anything. But insofar as anybody doesn't agree that there is this Evolian world of being that we've lost contact with through these, these four stages of a degrading history, and that access to this world of being is only available to very particular people, to differentiated men who through through we'll get we'll get to living beyond good and evil, which is a necessary condition for becoming an integrated man from the differentiated man. Mm. And and through testing oneself and achieving ontological fracture to become this differentiated man you you can get some sort of access to this world but imperfect 
Evola's disagreement with many philosophers is basically you don't subscribe to my cosmology or to my structure of the universe that I've just decided and therefore you're wrong. He'll make quite he'll make quite reasonable criticisms of them, but at their core, and the further along these criticisms go, the more and more arbitrary the criticisms get. Yeah, so to actually put some meat on the bones of that, for instance, in the chapter from from the precursors of nihilism to the lost youth and the protest movement, what are the kinds of, I mean, I think anyone in the audience would probably assume the kinds of criticisms he's going to make, but could you talk about what are the criticisms that he makes of the protest movement or rather why is a protest movement happening at this point in time, 1960, uh, post-war, and uh, why is it symptomatic of this particular stage of the Kali Yuga? This is a theme in Revolt Against the Modern World. He describes our current historiography of, of hailing things like individual freedoms, democracy, as an involution. I think he calls it shipwreck euphoria or yeah, something yeah. like that. <laughs> <laughs> that something terrible is happening. We're losing connection or have totally severed our connection to this higher spiritual Evolian reality. And instead of recognizing this to be the tragedy that it is, we are such degraded human beings. He calls us, calls us traumatized mm. that we see it to be a good thing. And protest movements or people thinking that protest movements are a good thing is degenerate because those protest movements want degenerate aims and the people supporting those movements are degenerate because they support those degenerate protest movements. (laughs) And all of these things are really taking place in this vacuum of meaning. We on some level all recognise that we don't have this spiritual objective link anymore and so are scrabbling for any sort of meaning that we can rustle up. It's just these these things don't help. No, no, no. Evola helps. It's just all of the other stuff we've come up with. He says religion is the opium of the people, and now economics is the opium. Oh no, this is a he was quoting um Hemingway. He mm, quoted Hemingway yeah. saying, Yeah, in this Hemingway novel, I forget which which one? I think it was a short story. Um, he says, religion is the opium of the people, and now economics is the opium of the people, along with patriotism. What about sexual intercourse? Was that an opium of the people? But drink was a sovereign opium of the people. Oh, an excellent opium. Although some prefer the radio, another opium of the people, a cheap one. So yeah. we've, we've come up with all of these opiums, and... What so much of this book is describing what he he always puts in inverted commas as a crisis mm. of of something a crisis of morality a sexual crisis a crisis of marriage and all of these crises are bourgeois crises they're the bourgeois world being in trouble so when people talk about marriages falling apart he says well actually this isn't a true crisis or not a a crisis that is universal. It's more the degradation of the modern world, of the bourgeois world, because traditional marriage hasn't existed for a long time. And so what is now in crisis doesn't, doesn't matter at all. Yes. Yeah. So he, he, he is, he is quite, he is quite sure to, 
he is quite sure to um, uh, he, he makes sure the reader knows that uh, we can't pretend that we can return to the world of yesterday in terms of uh, embracing traditional in the conventional sense, not the capital T sense. Uh, we can't embrace traditional <laughs> values of yesterday, bourgeois values, return to uh, you know Christian marriage or Catholic marriage or anything like that. He says, no, no, that's all illusory. But it seems to me, I mean, I was quite impressed that he did actually have the contemporary range to refer to lots of people, at least I was familiar with, like Jack Kerouac, Allen Ginsberg, Henry Miller, uh, Norman Podhoritz, the neoconservative critic. But at the end of the chapter, he does just pretty much say all of these are symptoms of the same fundamental trauma, and he sort of just checks them off as if he's checking off a, li checking off a list of what is completely obvious. So he closes and he says, It is not necessary to dwell any further on these testimonies of a traumatised existence, nor on those whom one might call the martyrs of modern progress. As I have said, all that interests us here is their value as symptomatic indices of the times. The forms mentioned here have also degenerated into extravagant and ephemeral fashions, but there is no denying the causal and necessary connection that unites them to the world where God is dead, and no substitute has yet been found for him. When these forms pass, others of the same type will certainly crop up, according to circumstances, until the present cycle is exhausted. So it seems to me that uh, at least the first half of this book, he, he examines all these contemporary movements as more or less symptoms of the same thing. And he sort of traces it back through Nietzsche and Heidegger and so forth. But uh, does that gel with your reading of it, Jack, or am I missing something essential that he says in these opening chapters? Yeah, that's, I think that's right. At least, well, I think that's right. Insofar as I'm able to understand Evola, I think that's right. <laughs> if not, it's the same misunderstanding that I have because he he traces this line from you 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 initially have this golden age, but you lose the transcendent link, leading to what he calls an autonomous morality, which is a morality separated from from this world of being, and eventually gets separated from theistic religion which he regards as a degraded form of objective religion and he says okay well that leads to utilitarianism a bourgeois morality based on convenience romanticism which is this subjective and deeply or fetishistically individualistic uh form form of philosophy Eventually getting to Nietzsche where you try to overcome a sense of, of nihilism and terminating in existentialism. And he, as you finished with that quote, like that other forms of the same type will, will crop up, he views all of these different movements, romanticism, Nietzsche, existentialism, as just degraded forms trying to cope with the trauma of having lost our objective traditional link. And... They, it's quite interesting. He'll describe some of these things and pull out bits that he thinks are useful and thinks that the differentiated or integrated man might be able to make use of to nourish him in the Kali Yuga. But we'll always make sure that you know that ultimately these guys are all trash. I think there was this, there was this section where he was discussing the phenomenologists and Husserl 
and made sure to point out it's look if you've got a strong foundation in the world of being and of cap in capital E tradition you don't need this hack this guy he's shit he's useless you only need him if you're some sort of smooth brand modern that has no link to the world of tradition yeah, I think I think what's important here, and what also draws attention to the fact that this is a rigorously practical, you know, guide to life in the modern world, <laughs> is that I think he invokes these particular contemporary authors as to say, look, here is a way in that you can trace your way back to the world of tradition, but. Yeah, it's sort of like a reverse map where you move backwards through the philosophical tradition, but none of them are actually useful. Because I think what his main gripe, so far as I can tell, with everyone he talks about, from Nietzsche to Sartre to Heidegger, is that is (laughs) is a certain emphasis on corporeality, as in you know corpus body corporeality. He doesn't like anything that attaches itself to the body. Like Heidegger's Dasein is still in some sense, a physical body that is moving through space and time. Anything that is a body that has agency is ipso facto no good. Anything that is that is uh, concrete, if it's not just purely abstract, mm. not at all, <laughs> doesn't have any existence in space time. <laughs> <laughs> if it's not based on Evola just autistically likes... reading Bullfinch's mythology over and over again, <laughs> then it's shit and you shouldn't believe it. <laughs> So I assume he likes integers. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He doesn't like maps. His side, his section on science, complaining about algebra for like thirty pages. <laughs> like, I mean, I think we're getting a little. Dude bit, was such a fucking space cake. We're getting a little bit ahead of the game here, but I think one complaint he makes about um, I can't remember. He makes some. He's making. He makes numerous complaints about physics but he talks about how you can no longer like truly conceptualize light everything is reduced to numbers so he doesn't he doesn't like it because somehow its essence in the world of being is lost everything is reduced to you know mere pathetic arid numbers mm. Mm. <laughs> he really is just essence ever lived a bit longer and oh <laughs> uh, he's got yeah, well, he's always had a very, very powerful old man yells at cloud energy, but it, it's especially it's especially when he talks about jazz that it comes out. He's got a whole section on jazz. Don't worry, it um <laughs> it might possibly induce possession, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, I just, just wish this you guy were... lived longer. I wish I wish he saw the twenty twenties. When we've I wish got, he's lived we've to got see the Spice only Girls. Fans. We've got we've got hyper pop. Mm. We've we've got Bruce crap. Jenner. We've got Caitlin so Jenner. many things he would love. Oh man, yeah, trans people, the internet. There's just so much stuff that I wish I we he had. Ever he he would have had a fucking aneurysm. Today. Mate. <laughs> yeah, it might have killed him. <laughs> yeah, I should also say that I'm. Getting progressively drunker, which I think will have an improving. Do you effect want another on beer? It. Yeah, can you bring something up? Yeah, I'm almost. Well, have to bring up another beer. Uh, whether or not we include this for the purposes of uh, the audience, but I should let them know that I'm probably ten to fifteen drinks in. <laughs> I think we should. Uh, you should tell them at the end. As I've been getting drunk and drunker. Um, all right. Well, I'll uh, I'll speak to you on Tuesday, Jack. We'll do the SE five episode. <laughs> yeah. No. All right. See you, mate. All right. Chat on Tuesday. All right. See you later. It is interesting that you're saying you're getting drunk, Ed, because 
I've been asked, on the Discord, someone asked if Levi and I had been taking drugs, like getting stoned or something like that for some of the episodes <laughs> and seemed quite surprised when we said we hadn't. So you're the first intoxicated guest, or first intoxicated presenter on Book Club from Hell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely, I'm definitely intoxicated. I mean, um, <laughs> I, for the last few hours, I was sort of reading and listening to uh clips from the audiobook of it and like re-listening to particular chapters and scribbling some frantic notes and I thought well I'll just turn up and I'll be a little bit whiffled and I'll get increasingly whiffled but I don't think that's really going to hamper my ability to make sense of Evola. No it's going to raise the the intellectual tone of the conversation I think above that which <laughs> we normally have when we're sober. Okay so let, I feel like we should we could take forever to get through this book but it in part two, let's, in the world where God is dead. Let's get to the idea of being beyond good and evil. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, but would you, do you want to? That's do you want to put a sort of a a full stop on either in the world where God is dead, part two, or just cut through part three, the dead end of existentialism. Let's jump up. How about six active nihilism? Yeah. Nature. Yeah. Because he's got this bit before about you know the protest movement and the socioeconomic myth and things like that. And those are just more variations on a theme of, say, with our socioeconomic myth, it's just another mistaken, idiot, modern form of historiography where we view we view social problems throughout history to have their basis in socioeconomic factors, mm. which, of course, any sensible person will understand <laughs> to be entirely wrong because it's an entirely corporeal explanation of the world. It makes... No reference to inner transcendence. And a priori is wrong because of that. I mean, do I even need to say this? No, you don't. It's obvious to any thinking human being. <laughs> so, all right. So there, there are a few chapters here which are actually useful. They're like real world, real shit. <laughs> where he tells you, he starts giving you what I read this book for about how I... Obviously, I'm a differentiated man. I knew this when I picked up Obviously. the book. It says, I mean, it describes itself as a survival manual for the aristocrats <laughs> of the soul. I thought that and thought, fuck, Jack, that's you. That's, that's me. That's, that's Cutbo to a T. And, Sorry, Jack to a T. That's, that's <laughs> me. And so what, what are some of the things that this admittedly vaguely defined differentiated man, the the raw material, the clay that will be moulded into the integrated man can do to become this integrated man. Well, one of the first things is he takes Nietzsche's idea of going beyond good and evil, mostly expounded in Nietzsche's work, Beyond Good and Evil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I actually read that too, so I feel like I should be able to explain it. <laughs> I hope I can. Uh, so... This idea of going beyond good and evil is a natural continuation of the idea that God's dead. So we've killed the Christian God by just not believing in it anymore. In Evola's telling, yes, we've just disposed of another dissolute, involuted distortion of true objective morality or a, a true objective way of acting because Evola bristles at the term morality despite actually being quite normative later in the book in how you should act mm. he like everyone who complains about morality manages to slip in their own morals or how they think you should behave under some silly guys. i mean if they're the right ones though 
Uh, yeah, if they're the, the right one. Yeah, nat- naturally, <laughs> if they agree with the person stating them, then that's ultimately the test of truth, is if I agree with them. So, I mean, I agree with all my beliefs, and I don't think that's a coincidence. There's some deeper reasoning behind it. Which is probably what Evola, if you pushed him, wouldn't have said, but it's what I want him to have said. It's what I'm imputing to him. Anyway, that... <laughs> what was that before? Well, uh, oh, yeah, I, I, I just um, wanted to interject there. I mean, like, I mean, in one sense, you know, we can be dismissive and vulgar and say, well, you know, he's just one of those people that asserts something to be the case and because it's what he happens to believe to be true. But he is someone that has a proper orientation towards being, an upward orientation towards being. So he does actually posit an objective criteria for us taking him at his word. Because if I were to say to you, <laughs> if I were to say to you, well, look, uh, Jack, I believe X, Y, and Z, you would be well within your rights to say, Ed, fuck off. But if you apprehended that mm. I had an orientation of being that was upward looking and transcendent, you would take me at my word because it's just <laughs> true. So I, I think he, he's defensible on that score. Yeah, you have a, when you have a potently polar symbol rotating above your head... <laughs> Like a swastika <laughs> or a black sun, then you know, you know you can trust a person. <laughs> In this book, actually, he didn't talk about swastikas, which I was a bit disappointed yeah. about because his long sections in Revolt Against the Modern World, where he talks about how the swastika is actually really cool, was just. <laughs> it was so delightful, just the justifications he gave for why swastikas are actually really good. <laughs> But uh, if people w- if people want to hear why Evola really really liked swastikas, listen to our Revolt Against Modern World episode. Mm. Anyway, it- so with Nietzsche, so you kill God, you you develop a nihilism. And he's got these stages of nihilism where where you realize God is dead, that this foundation for your beliefs didn't exist, and you you can't go back, you can't. Convince yourself that it exists again. That's this is a one-way valve. Mm. And then you've got this tragic phase of nihilism where you you try to see nihilism as a strength. You believe like you you act like a teenager who's read you know, half of a Camus novel or something like that, and decide that it's a measure of your strength to see how far you can go without a meaning to things, mm. or yep. or for how long you can you can bear to live in a meaningless world. It's almost like a, a reverse speed run. You see how long you can survive in some sort of state. <laughs> then eventually like you, you proclaim yourself to be a god, to prove yourself worthy of having killed God. I've always thought that that was a bit of of mental jujitsu, but look, fine. That, that's a lot of nature anyway, as he just says stuff. Mostly, I think, because it sounded quite strident. Hmm. Which, which is not necessarily a, a, a precondition for me agreeing to something, but this isn't, this isn't an episode on nature. The, valid, the validity of a point of view can be measured uh, against its stridency. <laughs> I think Nietzsche said, I'm not a man, I'm dynamite. As, as, as quite a positive thing. God, he was a fuckwit. I, like, I I enjoy reading his books, but don't necessarily agree with all of them. 
Like Evola. I mean, I've found Evola, so I don't need to agree with you. Yeah. yeah, you have gone beyond good and evil and found the world of tradition. And it, yeah, so that's exactly it. Once you've, once you've gone and reached this stage of nihilism, what do you do? So you can do all sorts of things. You can be an existentialist and feel condemned to be free and take this, this freedom as a massive burden. And it is, at least in Evola and Nietzsche's telling, a form of freedom in that you're living now without morals. Mm. You can do whatever you want, but also nothing you do really means anything. Yeah. And so what... What Nietzsche said, and why Nietzsche claimed to be the first man in Europe to have overcome nihilism, was that he said, okay, well, if there are no morals, or no morals based on a dead god, or ones that at least you can believe in, then you create your own, you DIY your own <laughs> ethical system. And, yeah, I, I, I guess, so... You reevaluate values, you set up this new table of values because you understand that things ultimately are not good and evil. You move beyond good and evil, and what you do is you analyse actions really as how they relate to what objective you're trying to achieve. And you view them almost as natural processes, so you don't regard something like sunlight as good or evil, it's simply a fact. And in a similar sense you view actions as simply facts that you're not imputing or not ascribing a Christian good or evil value to because these acts are simply facts, objective facts, and exist as beyond good and evil. And Evola looks at that and goes, okay, so this, this idea of acting beyond good and evil is pretty useful for this, for the differentiated man in the differentiated man's quest to become the integrated man. <laughs> integrated. <laughs> and <laughs> the integrated man. He was looking at differential and integral capitalism. <laughs> it's highly unlikely given how much he complained about that. <laughs> yes. But I mean, it, it would be it so, would be uh, see my mind. But what he says though is that you know, the problem with nature is that it really is a reduction to pure egoism, and I think that's where his yeah, his, his overarching his overarching view of uh, the Evola is a corporeal, whereas nature and other his successors are still trapped in the prism of corporeality. So uh, the problem yeah. is, is that you can't. You can define, you can posit your own values if you want. You can engage in a trans, a trans valuation of morals and so on and so forth. But that really doesn't mean anything to anything to anyone or anything outside of yourself. So it's really just a dead end. And I think that's it. Follows that the same kind of dead end arises in Sartre and so on and so forth. Exactly. So, I mean, this is exactly what Victoria Police told me when I was caught putting kilograms of LSD in the Melbourne water supply. I said to them, listen, you're all nihilists living in the ghost of your dead god. You look at me. I am the ubermensch. I've revaluated values and the transvaluation of my values have led me to conclude 
that what Melbourne needs, <laughs> what the second largest city in Australia needs, is a potent hallucinogen in the water supply. And look, the senior constable on duty was a fellow differentiated man and took me aside and said, all right, listen, I'd, I'll, I'll let you off on this one. You're exonerated. Just don't do it again. <laughs> and it's, it's exactly it. When, when everyone, when everything collapses into an individual subjectivity, then how, how are you meant to convince anyone else that putting LSD in the water supply was a good idea? You can't really. And I suppose Nietzsche would say, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Evola, Evola, however, makes quite an interesting criticism of Nietzsche when he says that with, with these revaluations of values, the only thing that can really distinguish them is how effective they are at imprinting themselves upon the world. Mm. And Nietzsche made extensive criticisms of Christianity and of Christians as being people who tried to hold back these, these supermen or overmen, the people who'd revaluated values. And Evola points out, well, isn't Christianity just another arbitrary moral system that is in some way outcompeting these supermen because it is holding them back? Because it, it's... Oh, we should probably talk about the will to power. This is turning into a <laughs> nature yeah, yeah, episode. Yeah, okay, look, give us a, a quick precy on the will to power. All right, so all transcendent values, higher truths, so on, so on, are interpreted as functions of life for the Nietzschean superman, the, the ubermensch who's revaluating his own values and becoming the meaning of this world or the justification for his own existence. Okay, and so... Mm. The essence of life is will to power. This is one of the things that Nietzsche's just Where decided. does he get this from? Oh, okay, so... <laughs> I don't fucking know. I've, <laughs> this is just typical Nietzsche. He might have, he might have been... He might have gotten along with... Actually, no, they wouldn't have gotten along no, at all. No, I don't think so. <laughs> but, okay, so intellectual bedfellow of Evola's insofar as Nietzsche just made up shit and then just said, if you don't agree me... If you don't agree with me, you're a fucking idiot. Not that's not a direct quote. But I'm paraphrasing. So he does similar thing, a similar thing to Evola, where he just says, "Okay, the essence of life is will to power. What's will to power? Well, Arthur Schopenhauer. I think Schopenhauer was writing slightly before Nietzsche. I'm not sure if they were contemporaneous, but he basically I, said I think, that I think the fundamental I think driver influenced Nietzsche. I'm pretty sure that's true." Yeah. What was the equivalent to Walter? All I really remember of Schopenhauer is reading a section of Schopenhauer where he told me he he says, "Don't read books. Learn by learn by living." And it's like, well, what the fuck do you have to offer me then, Arthur? <laughs> <laughs> Don't read books. Books are dumb. Written in a book. It's these continental philosophers. It, th th there's a certain amount of continental penis envy for the man of action. It's like, don't read the book <laughs> while you're writing a book. <laughs> Go, I am dynamite. <laughs> you're like, no, you're not. You're just a completely unprepossessing little philologist. Just shut up and go back to your nerdy yeah, pursuits. You're just a professor of philology. <laughs> at, he was at Basel yeah, University or yeah. something. And then he got cucked by his best friend. <laughs> Did he? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was he. He was in love with some. Uh, okay, so <laughs> I, I I preface all of this by saying. I read a Wikipedia article on, on Nietzsche's life probably years ago. And my, my memory already resembles Swiss cheese. So uh, don't listen to me. 
I'm an idiot. But I I vaguely remember that Nature was in love with a woman and she ended up shacking up with his best friend. And I mean, and then he lost his mind to neurosyphilis and I, I, th- I th- doing, and, and hugged horses. And I think like one that. could profitably define a Nietzschean as someone who has been cucked by reality. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that phrase means, but it's so evocative <laughs> that I, I can't help but agree. It was what you were saying before. It's that the true truth value of any statement is really to be measured by how stridently it's expressed. <laughs> you don't need to worry about. These stupid things, these details like internal consistency, relevance to the real world. No, it's all about how stridently someone but, says something. But it must be said that Evola does actually have something to say here because he is very against yeah. the notion of uh, subject subjective responses playing any part in uh, either how you receive something or how you act upon the world. I mean, because... I think one of his criticisms of not only Nietzsche, but well, basically everyone, is that they still are imprisoned within the notion of uh, thing, concepts like good and sin. And I think at some point he says, no, 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 there is an objective world of tradition that transcends us. And it's better to say rather than someone has sinned or someone has acted well, is to say that they have uh, acted correctly or in error. Uh, insofar as it corresponds yeah. with the the upper transcendent transcendent realm, was I? Oh, did I even finish talking about what the? No, no, no. The, sorry, we were. Superman. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> what was I saying? Anyway, yeah, I said oh, something about it, Nietzsche said that the essence of life is the will to power, and we then started <laughs> shitting on shitting on Nietzsche. <laughs> Definitely a dumber man than both of us. <laughs> Especially me after 15 drinks. <laughs> As you were. Anyway, so because, yeah, because, because all transcendent values are functions of life and the essence of life is the will to power and the Superman is, the, is this being who can wield the will to power, the Superman in some sense is an expression of the will to power. They make this will to power the foundation of their being. Mm. And so they can create new values and so new functions of life and therefore functions of will to power. They're making values. They're going well beyond good and evil. But this leads us to this, this criticism he made of Nietzsche's antagonism to Christianity mm. that on page 39, he says... Now, it is obvious that in function of a mere will to power, all distinctions vanish. There are no more supermen or sheepmen, neither affirmers nor negators of life. There is only a variety of techniques, of means, far from being reducible to sheer physical force, tending to make one human class or another prevail. Means that are indiscriminately called good in proportion to their success. If in life and the, the history of civilization there exist phases of rise and decline, phases of creation and destruction and decadence, what authorises us to ascribe value to one rather than to the others? Why should decadence be an evil? If it is all life and all justifiable in terms of life, if this is truly taken in its irrational, naked reality, outside any theology or teleology as nature would have wished, even anti-nature and violence against life enter into it. Once again, all firm ground gives way. As an aside... 
one of Nietzsche's criticisms of Christianity is that it's violence against life, that it makes people, it, it prevents people from living this full, unrestrained Dionysian existence because they're, they're doing something silly like restraining themselves in anticipation of being judged by, by, by God in the afterlife. St. Peter won't let them into heaven. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true because um, it's also a point where Nietzsche and Evola might agree because they're both they're mutual admirers of Islam in, comparison to Christ, in contrast to Christianity. I mean, Islam being a much more worldly mm. religion, being much more focused on domination rather than, as you say, submissively trying to uh, prepare your soul for the afterlife. Yeah. So Nietzsche has taken Nietzsche. Evel has taken from Nietzsche this this idea of acting beyond good and evil. And while obviously Evel has some problems with the particulars of how Nietzsche derived what is admittedly something <laughs> of an arbitrary system. Evola, fortunately, for the practical man, this is practical, <laughs> practical aristocratic advice for the practical aristocrat of the soul, Evola removes Nietzsche's arbitrariness from this idea of going beyond good and evil and inserts his own. <laughs> he's, he's swapped out the arbitrariness for an arbitrariness that he agrees with because it's his idea. It's a fixed arbitrariness, and, not a relative arbitrariness, though. It's got that to be said for it. No, 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 no. It's objective mm. arbitrariness. <laughs> what, what Evola gets to is, so for, for your prospective tiger rider, <laughs> for, your, for your differentiated but unintegrated man... <laughs> what the fuck is an integrated man? This is practical! <laughs> Seven things you want. For your practically seven inclined. things you've never known about the integrated man. We're too afraid to ask. <laughs> it really it, it'll be like a pop up or something like that when you're you're browsing reputable websites. Like, one crazy trick to make you into an integrated man. I mean, I would click that tab. And that crazy trick is is being oneself. <laughs> Just be yourself, bro. This is. Well, as Levi has previously Evola, said, you know, th this is ripe material for a self-help guru, you know. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> In a volume yeah. self-help guru. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> we can be interrupting each other over and over again. A combination of both of us interrupting each other when we're talking to each other face to face, and we're doing this between Melbourne and Prague, so... So what, one of the things that you've got to do if you want to become an integrated man from a differentiated man, and look, if you're the wrong type of person listening to this podcast, turn it <laughs> off because this is, this is not for you. This is the no undifferentiated men's club. <laughs> Ed and I, of course, are both not merely Very differentiated. Integrated. <laughs> highly differentiated men. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> That'll be on my LinkedIn profile. <laughs> integrated man. Not merely differentiated, but integrated. I'll include nothing else to see the job offers come rolling in. You won't get many job offers, but you'll get the right ones. I've <laughs> None, as I deserve. <laughs> so, being oneself is 
based on this idea of going beyond good and evil. So on page 41, Evola says, The principle of purely being oneself, this is what remains after the elimination of what philosophy calls heteronymous morality, or morality based on an external law or command. So you can see the parallel between Nietzsche's Superman revaluating values and going beyond good and evil and Evola's differentiated man <laughs> removing, removing morality based on external law or command. And what you're left with is... So Evola's not, at least at this point in the text, not very prescriptive in what you should be doing if you're just being yourself. Mm. You you do need you need to be acting and behaving in such a way as fully fulfills the the commands of your capital B being. You can't be acting in a way that is conditioned by the external world. He's quite vague about about what this would look like. Charitably I'd say that's because he acknowledges that as different people, or at least as exteriorly different people of course we are all ultimately based in the world of being but as exteriorly different people just being it yourself bro might look a bit different for one person for one integrated or differentiated man than for another uh, another differentiated Mm, man mm. i I think part of what he's doing here is defining it quite negatively and this is where it's quite practical because he's saying he's saying this is what this is what is not being an integrated man. And he, go, he runs through a whole list of things that are uh, examples of one not being integrated. But finally, I think in the end, it's a very practical definition, akin to the definition that was once offered in a court of law about pornography. You don't know what the world of being... You don't, we can't describe the world of being, but you'll know it when you see it. You know yeah. it when you see it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the... <laughs> The parallels between Evola and pornography <laughs> are bountiful and fruitful. So, to truly be yourself, you have to will your own being into your own law mm. with absolutely no regard for received morality. And his, his, his criticism of nature, in part, is because nature sneaks received morality into his idea mm of one's own law. His his will to power is directionless. In that he says, okay, so seeking seeking power, well what does that really mean? It's directionless. That doesn't imply a direction for the practical man. So instead what you need is to be guided by your own being, by being oneself, which is why you need to cultivate the ability to be simply oneself. Mm. I think it's I think so, it's almost a bit of an analog it's it's analogous to the um to the uh the opposition that you guys talked about in the previous Evolop podcast between a phallic man and a virile man. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean it, because the will to power is still situated in the world as you and I us mm. fallen um not properly uh well, not differentiated, let alone integrated men, uh, know it. Yeah. He says on page 43, in all strictness, to be purely oneself and to have a fully free existence, one should be able to accept will and say an absolute yes to whatever one is 
Even where there is nothing in one's nature that approaches the ideal of the Superman, even if one's own life and destiny do not present heroism, nobility, splendor, generosity, and altruism, but decadence, corruption, debility, and perversion. So, it's... I'm not... He, he doesn't actually go into how you discover what you truly are in your very being. So, his practicality does have limits. <laughs> however, however highly practical he is, there is a limit to Evolian practicality. But once you've discovered what you truly are, then you need to live that even, even if the things that are more conventionally said to be bad, like being decadent, corrupt, or perverted, if those things are truly expressions of your being, then just, just embrace it. Yeah. Be, be decadent, corrupt, and a, a this pervert. Is, this is what, a question I want to ask, Jack, because um, is this text actually a valuable thing to read for someone who is not necessarily a differentiated man. I mean, I know it is intended as a survival manual for aristocrats of the soul, but in the Evolian schema, whether there's a caste system, some are naturally higher, some are naturally lower. Could not the, you know, the lower caste person who picks up this book read it with profit because they would say, okay, I'm a degenerate, I'm a pervert, I'm decadent, but... At least now I know where I fit within the true transcendent schema of things. And you can, as the modern uh, people term it, lean into it. <laughs> lean into your perversion. So when he says it's written for a particular type of person, I'm not entirely sure which. So there are, there are two main avenues I could see that going. So either... As you've said, Evola views, so we all have a pre-existence. There's some sort of soul or being that exists before the human form and will exist afterwards. And this, this pre-existing form chooses the human that it manifests mm. itself as, which, as an aside, is why poor people exist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've often... I've often... <laughs> Evola actually does use that argument. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been reaching around for vulgar sort of a sociological explanations as to why poor people are poor, but finally we have landed on the one true explanation. Finally. We've found an objective and a metaphysical, yeah. a higher justification. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the spiritual racism. It's a spiritual classism. <laughs> a more intimate classism. <laughs> <laughs> so either either you yeah so e even you might be your pre-existence your your pre-existing soul might have chosen to be utterly plebeian in this life but you you might be the right person to read this book in the sense that yes while you are while you are lower in that hierarchy you have enough self-insight to understand your place mm. in in the order of things and therefore you're the right person to be reading this book. And in just being yourself, you'll become a, a lowly worm that is aware that it's a lowly <laughs> worm and <laughs> behaves as such. I'm not sure whether that's what he means by the right person to read this book because also 
he did he doesn't talk about race mixing much in this book, but he, no, he does men- he does mention that th- through through so much miscegenation, <laughs> we've blurred the spiritual stocks. Because originally the spiritual stocks were much more pure, that someone was born and through through the the breeding of only the spiritually correct people with other spiritually compatible people maintained a spiritual position within a spiritual hierarchy. Say someone might have been born to a priestly caste, someone might have been born to the warrior caste, someone might have been born to the plebeian caste, and their natures were pure because they were not spiritually race mixed <laughs> but through so much miscegenation in a in a spiritual <laughs> sense again evla's not a biological <laughs> credit where credit's due <laughs> i don't want people to misunderstand me <laughs> would would someone even have that pre-existing nature anymore given the amount of mixing that has taken place that's my that's my main problem with this first theory of the type of person who should be reading this book. I think more likely what Evola means is that we're, we're all spiritually race-mixed mm. now. It's unavoidable. Yeah. The right type of person to be reading this book is a person who has some desire and some ability to orient themselves to above. Mm. And these sort of people still do exist. They're just very degraded compared to what the Hyperboreans or the Atlanteans were dealing with before they miscegenated and practiced titanic black magic to make Atlantis sink. Yeah, so I guess if we were to put sort of a crude narrative form on it, I mean, we might be lower spiritually miscegenated products, but if we can ride the tiger for long enough until it dies, at least... Uh, however low and base we are, we might be able to start or begin the road back um, such that more, perhaps we can uh, reinvigorate a progress towards a more spiritually pure person. I mean, I don't think any reader of this... Oh, I just yeah. found... I, I just... I found a bit of practical oh, advice for the yeah. practical differentiating man. So, page 61... Evola, empirical. He's, he's practical. So, once one has discovered through experiment which, one, which of one's manifold tendencies is the central <laughs> one, one sets about identifying it with one's will, stabilising it and organising all one's secondary or divergent tendencies around it. This is what it means to give oneself a law. One's own law. Okay, so I, th- I think we might have just, we might have just put this... This issue to bed. <laughs> Evola is practical. Page 61 of the Inner Traditions edition of Evola's... Not... Uh, ride the, ride tiger. the Tiger, that's it. It's of ride, the, of ride the Tiger. That is where you get practical <laughs> advice. So you've, you've got to experiment. Leave yourself open. Go in a gap year. <laughs> Find yourself. When you're in a youth hostel in Budapest and... The other the, the the other people sharing your bunk room ask you, oh, so what brought you? <laughs> why are you why are you backpacking around Europe? You go, I'm here to find myself. 
I'm here to identify which one of my manifold tendencies is the central one. I will identify it with my will. I will organize all of my secondary or divergent tendencies around it to give myself a law, my own law, so that I can transform from a differentiated to an integrated man so that I can leave myself open to the possibility of ontological rupture (laughs) and not metaphysically, but in some sense, become initiated and commune with the world of being to develop my own esoteric doctrine oriented, oriented to above. At this point, they're backing away and say... You're scaring me. <laughs> I'm calling the police. No, no, no. But I think I think that actually could have an ennobling effect on those around you. So, for instance, everyone you know, at least imagines you know, hostels and backpacker places to be you know, hotbeds of you know, sexual transgression and all this kind of thing. But if you were to announce that mm, to a person mm. or to announce that to uh, your fellow backpackers at a hostel, they might say, oh, okay. And then they could, in fact, start rotating around you. The women could actually understand their place. That they, they would, I think, perhaps, if not themselves be spiritually transformed, be spiritually transformed uh, in their relation to you. And actually, you could have an extremely promiscuous, modern, degenerate place like a, you know, a hostel in Amsterdam turned into a highly ennobled harem. That is true. You could actually... You, you might get a harem from yeah. that, which would be good both for you and for the women Indeed. involved. Because, of course, <laughs> the women involved, as I learned in Revolt Against the Modern World, would be able to... They'd learn to overcome the feminine urge to possess. <laughs> and the man involved would be able to ennoble himself by developing the virile quality of not becoming physically attached to any <laughs> one woman. The women would metaphysically start <laughs> rotating around the central fixed polar point of the man. This is, this is a great idea. Look, in Prague there are hostels. Maybe I'll go to one after recording this and start reading sections of Evelyn. I think you better. <laughs> if I you think know I what's good for you. Should. <laughs> well, that's the problem. It's I, 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 I don't yet know which of my central tendencies is my primary tendency. Yes, but you've got to lean into so, the experience to find out. I mean, you're not going to get to where you're going unless you start the journey. I mean, that much, that much must be admitted. Mm, mm. The journey of a thousand miles <laughs> starts with a single step. I think that's um, Sun Tzu. All... <laughs> Or I've noticed that that people who 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 desperately want to appear well read tend to quote Sun Tzu, but I've never read Sun Tzu. But no, neither it seems that they'll ascribe almost anything to Sun Tzu's Son of War, so, uh, Son of War, Art of War. So that's my first Sun Tzu quote for the episode. Um, something about ennobling yourself by by talking about Evelyn Youth Hostels. That was Sun Tzu. That was that was definitely Sun Tzu. <laughs> all, right, all right. Anyway, just just be just be yourself, bro. Yeah. Is and and through just being yourself, bro, you you learn how to act beyond good and evil. That's a necessary step for the differentiated man to take on his journey to integration. Yes. To start living with one's own law as the center of your existence, mm, mm. but. That's not all. That's not all. You've got to go <laughs> beyond that. But it's a good first step. But wait, step. there's more. <laughs> but there's more practicality <laughs> to come. 
There's more. This is like this is the Tony Robbins book of Evola's back catalogue. <laughs> this is the one where you learn how to become the best you can be, and you get practical advice. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine. Man, Evelo, I wish that Tony Robbins got. I'm trying to imagine Evola giving uh, lectures to uh, stadia packed full of eager youths, just hanging on their every word on his every word and hearing like listening to youtube compilations of the most inspiring evolian themes um it, it is disappointing there's no <laughs> video of him is there or is there i don't know i do wish that that Evola lived to see our age and became a prolific lifestyle yeah. youtuber yeah. just doing like yeah just i mean live streaming himself live streaming him, <laughs> him live streaming himself going in <laughs> I mean, I, I also wish he'd moved to America or something like that, gone to Florida. So he'd like live stream himself at Walmart, just like wandering around, yelling at people if they're wearing revealing clothing, if they're playing music too loudly. If he'd set up his own TikTok channel, he could have like just 15 second bites of Evolian wisdom on TikTok with him dancing or something like that. That would have been good. Yes. Just so we we could see behind we could see behind the monocled mask <laughs> of Julius Evola to see what he was like behind closed doors. Mm, mm. But yeah, he could have set up an OnlyFans <laughs> account. I feel like the glory of his light though might have been overwhelming. Overwhelming, uh, maybe, but still, I, I would have liked to see some Evolian amateur. <laughs> I'll search for it later on. <laughs> <laughs> That's something for Rule 34 I wonder if Rule 34 extends to Evola Which would have been I mean, if there is some form of porn Based around the, the a, a virile man contributing his qualifying substance To the changeable telluric female nature Ordering her according to his internal law Then I'd be really That would actually pleased. be a fascinating plot arc for a, you know, a porno film. I mean, it starts off and you've got some phallic man who is posturing and then he gets absolutely cucked mm, by a virile mm. Evolian man. Evolian. Yeah. yeah, who is able to perform <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a function of his connection to the world of being. He just, he impresses this woman yeah. by performing rights. I mean... And if then you thought she they liked sense, big dick. She can sense that it magic. is having an effect that these rights, these rights are impressing a triumphal seal upon <laughs> an entity within the world of being, bringing this entity under the virile man's control, but at the same time nourishing mm, this entity. Mm, yeah, yeah. She says to him, I would love to have your spiritual yeah. children. And it would be, it would be in... And he it, says, get, get the fuck away from me, bitch. You're of the wrong but, cast. I don't want anything to do the with you. The thing is, this this, this so he's, he's, would be he's, he's kicked sand in her phallic phallic man. <laughs> this this pornography would be space. equally accessible and enjoyable, and as you say, nourishing for males and females. Oh, of course. So long as it it adequately demonstrates the order of things. So long as it is in some way a reflection of a a porn film in the world mm. of being. Then I, it would it would be ennobling. It would be. I just had a split second where I tried to envisage what a porn film in the world of being would look like. 
I found myself solemnly nodding along as you were speaking and then thinking... <laughs> Wait. Unfortunately, it probably is something that is beyond the can yeah. of people yeah. like us. I mean, I've never been initiated. No. It's not... Pro- it's not... Possible? No, it's it's in it, our age, unfortunately. <laughs> but if yeah, if there's someone that is um able to be initiated, has the re- has the requisite uh, noble stock. Um, I don't know him. I haven't met him. But as you as you and Levi routinely say, if you're out there and you're listening to this, give us a buzz. Give us a buzz. Tell me what transcendent <laughs> world of being porn's like. Okay, now we should probably return to the uh, themes of the book. So, <laughs> is there anything more to say? I thought the whole book was about porn. <laughs> uh, this this book is about everything. That's the problem with it. You can come at, come at it from any angle you yeah. like, and it is compl- has complete explanatory power for every phenomena you can come across. <laughs> it's it's, it's a uni- unified field theory of life. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so the the next section, the transcendent dimension, is mostly him complaining about nature and talking about why nature's wrong. I actually, I enjoyed this section, but it ultimately doesn't tell us much about what the the practical man should be doing. And for people who want to read a volley in criticism of nature or of Sartre, etc., I recommend reading this book. But I think most listeners are actually interested in the practical Evolian yep. advice for how they can live their lives according to their mm. own law and eventually according to a transcendent law that goes beyond themselves. Yeah, that's something I want to ask, though. I mean, at what point is the connection made between finding your own law and finding the transcendent law? Is it that the, the uh, inward-looking yeah. self so- is a precondition to finding the... To finding finding the transcendent law, where is that connective tissue? Yeah, so this is this is where Evola just sneaks in things that he likes and wants to be transcendent laws. So first of all, you've got to start being yourself and living according to your own law. And this is this is a necessary step, but not sufficient to becoming an integrated man. Once you are living according to your own law and you've left behind good and evil and and this morality that exists outside of yourself you have to you need to have this ability to transcend and this is one of his criticisms of nature he sees nature as this tragic figure who was able to see beyond good and evil which is this first stage of becoming an integrated man but nature didn't have a link to spirituality mm. and I've got a quote here. He starts talking about the voltage of this frying nature. So he says on page 51, these essential characteristics that some have already recognized in nature can be explained precisely as so many forms in which the transcendent acts and manifests. But the fact that this is not recognized and admitted as such, the fact, therefore, that this energy remains in the closed circle of imminence and of life generates a higher voltage than the circuit can sustain. This fact, moreover, may be the true and deeper cause of the final collapse of Nietzsche the man. From a medical perspective, I'd say it was probably neurosyphilis that did him in, but maybe it was because Nietzsche Nietzsche had these insights. He had some inklings of transcendence, 
but ultimately he wasn't open to transcendence. Uh, so yeah. these yeah, these recognitions in him generated a higher voltage than his circuit could sustain, and that's what did him in. Yeah, yeah. So what you've got, you need to have some ability to connect to above. You need the ability to internally transcend. And this internal transcendence can come about in a few ways. Late, quite a bit later on in the book, Evola describes three mm, ways yeah. that you can internally transcend. One is that you're born with an innate dignity. Like you're just already yeah. there. And he says, especially in this t these times when there's been so much spiritual mm. race mixing, that's vanishingly <laughs> unlikely. You can have received dignity and either you can, and this is the most common way today or the most likely way today that it could happen, where you undergo some sort of deep spiritual trauma, which leads to an ontological mm. fracturing, which then opens you up to above. Mm. <laughs> the third way is that you can have it He calls it being grafted on Where someone initiates you And he says no this can't happen Because there are no organisations anymore Which can do that because everything's too bad And there's been too much <laughs> race mixing <laughs> It always comes back to, to Wait wait can I ask though How, the, how does spiritual <laughs> race mixing occur As opposed to biological race mixing well, the beauty of Evola is that he takes things which I expect he didn't like in the first place, like, say, black people having sex with white people, <laughs> and then and then makes up this, this spiritual system yep. with which he can say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not one of those phallic men who believes in things like, like biological race mixing. I have a spiritual dimension to it which elevates mm. it. So... I mean, I can, I can, I can readily, I can readily understand that, I can readily understand that uh, biological race mixing would necessarily have as a concomitant spiritual race mixing. But does, but the spiritual race mixing, I assume, can also take place on its own terms. Yes. Yeah. That's. <laughs> Yeah, this is this, as, this as one is of the Evola foremost Evola scholars in the world. I'll um, I'm going to lay down some truth. About I mean, this is this is Evolian scholarship. There's so, no margin for error here. No, no, this is my description of Evola is as precise as Evola's description of Evola. Exactly. So precise. What happens in in Revolt Against the Modern World? He goes into more detail. On, <laughs> he goes into a lot of detail on the dangers of race mixing. But we all have a spiritual race. We're all of a spiritual stock, which in traditional societies corresponded to the caste that we were born into. Yep. The caste that our pre-existing soul or being chose oh, to yeah, exist. Oh, yes, that on. makes sense. Because it is the one's one's caste in a traditional society is a reflection of the fundamental nature of one's being in the world mm. of being. So you you deserve to be there. Yeah, because, because no, that, your, that makes sense. I'd forgotten about your that. Your pre-existing soul chose it. So what happens is you've got effect in the world of becoming. Our fallen material plane are these expressions of the world of being in people, <laughs> what appear to be individuals and. So naturally, 
one's one will biologically racially correspond to the spiritual race and so yes if people of two different biological races have a child that entails a spiritual race mixing as well this is why i say i i, I expect that evla just didn't like people of different races <laughs> having children together but said no no don't don't worry it's not because I don't like black people. It's because actually their blackness is a reflection of a spiritual stock in the world of being that I don't want mixed with the hyperborean <laughs> stocks. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you use the term hyperborean, I just I just love it. <laughs> it's like being surprised by truth. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it it it's a testament to the the fundamental, indissoluble, immaterial truth of these claims that when you hear of them, you immediately you're you're compelled to agree. Your being compels you to agree. It's it's not a feeling of discovery, but of rediscovery that you always knew the truth behind the danger of spiritually <laughs> mixing metaphor metaphysical <laughs> racial stocks. <laughs> lead to disasters like the sinking of Atlantis. <laughs> I always wondered what caused it. Now I know. I've I've always wondered. I mean, I have my monthly snorkeling trips where I try to find Atlantis, and whenever I'm out there in the ocean, just paddling away <laughs> with my snorkel and goggles on, I wonder to myself, what caused Atlantis to sink? <laughs> but then I read Revolt Against the Modern World, and I, I did discover the answer. <laughs> Voila. <laughs> All right, return us to the themes. Anyway, yeah, so... Okay, which chapter were we? So we, chip, we, we skipped a chapter where he discusses nature, which is interesting but ultimately not practical for our audience. <laughs> yeah. Audience, we are, we are bringing to you the most practical nuggets of wisdom from an overwhelmingly practical book. We're, yeah. we're distilling these things into a short, digestible podcast format. It's like an executive summary. It's just probably going to take like... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, I mean, this, this is written for the, for the intellectual elite, <laughs> for people who work at McKinsey and will tell you that they work at McKinsey, people who work at Bain and will proudly, within 15 seconds of talking to you, <laughs> tell you that they work at Bain. This is for people like them. This is for the people who insist on... Anything written on the internet tells you how many minutes precisely it takes them to read because they have such busy schedules that well, if this article on the five things you know, need to know about the FTX meltdown <laughs> takes me three minutes instead of two minutes to read that I can't fit it into my busy schedule, this is for those people. This podcast on Julius Evola on how to become yeah, an I mean, integrated man because is the, for that there type are busy people out there there are people leading busy lives there are investment bankers and so on and so forth but they want to know how to spiritual racism or how spiritual miscegenation occurs and why it's bad <laughs> and this is where they'll find that information in their busy schedules yeah exactly i mean mckinsey as we speak are writing one of the famed mckinsey mm. reports on spiritual race mixing and miscegenation. Yeah. And look, I've been asked to advise for them. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say this or not. You know, I've, 
I've signed an NDA. I'll I'll take this part mm. out of the podcast, but you know, I am consulting there on the Evolian view of spiritual racism. And <laughs> I've gotta say, look, they've got some good people there, but none of them know they're Evola like no. I do. I'm just, when you when you're good, you're good. <laughs> when, it's I'm just being myself. This is my central tendency that I'm organizing my subordinate tendencies around. <laughs> <laughs> My knowledge of Evola. Precisely. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, are we done with Nietzsche? Or are there final words to be said yeah. on Nietzsche? The, the, there are a few things to be said about Nietzsche mm. still. That he's, he's taken a few concepts of Nietzsche. I think what we should bear in mind for this book is that he's... Evola is very well read, and what he's doing is he's taking bits of the philosophies of people in the modern world that the integrated or the the differentiated man in his quest to become integrated can learn from and that's part of that's part of Evola's practicality is it he acknowledges that none of us grew up in a trad society and so some of the more traditional forms we might find confusing so he's taking he's taking forms of the modern world that a modern man might understand yes. and be able to incorporate into his own life to become integrated. It's a gentle introduction. It's the, it's the practicality of this book is overwhelming at times. Yeah, yeah. So what was he saying? Yeah, so Nietzsche's case, tragic case, instructive case. It's a warning that even if you can live according to your own internal moral code you can reevaluate your own values if you can't connect to above and transcend then that'll mm. do you in it'll it'll short circuit you yeah so beyond beyond nature when we when we so if if we move on to sartre and heidegger and so forth is there are there essential things that we need to cover here or is it more or less an elaboration of the same things because it was my impression that you know mutatis mutandis so a sort of different criticisms but they were more or less the same in the end or am i wrong yeah i i didn't take too many notes on the existentialists section because i think it almost could have been totally cut apart from the discussion of heidegger's mm. dasein or i don't know how to pronounce it well, yeah dasein um, it's just being there isn't it that's a translation yeah fucking heideggerian yeah. That can't just made up so many fucking words and wouldn't tell you what they meant. Anyway, this isn't a podcast on me complaining about Heidegger. This is a podcast on Evelyn complaining about Heidegger. Yes. Before we leave Nietzsche behind totally, there are a few things that, that, are, pro that are important to understand from the Nietzsche section that will come mm. up later. So I've got a bunch of quotes. Um, Please. <laughs> Yeah, so some quotes to clarify <laughs> some of his points. So this one is about making your own law. So on page, 50, on page 62, he says, With the recognition of one's own nature and the making of one's own law, this problem, and as an aside, the existential mm. problem, is only resolved partially on the formal plan. That is the plane of determination, or, if one prefers, individuation, which furnishes one with an adequate base for controlling one's conduct in any circumstances. But this plan has no transparency for one who wants to get to the bottom of things 
absolute meaning is not yet to be found mm. therein. So is what we were saying before about, say, in the case of Nietzsche, he on the formal plane or the, the individual plane was able to start acting beyond good and evil, but that plane is not mm. enough. You actually need to get deeper. And once you get deeper, you actually start behaving according to values that, funnily enough, Evola really likes. <laughs> uh, As luck it's would astonishing, have it. actually, how these things coincide. It's, As luck would have it's a, it. It's a coincidence, but a happy coincidence. Yeah. So he goes on to say, It is then that he must undergo the second degree of self-proving, which is like an experimental proof of the presence within him, in greater or lesser measure, of the higher dimension of transcendence. This is the unconditioned nucleus that in life does not belong to life's sphere, but to that of <laughs> being. So through an ontological fracture, you come to commune with being. You, you develop this inner transcendence, and that is what ultimately will inform your conduct. You've moved beyond this point. You're still beyond good and evil. You've just gone you're, even you're further. You're really beyond. You've gone so far beyond, so far beyond good and evil that you hit Julius Eveler's preconceived notions of how a person should behave, <laughs> which emits its its beautiful circularity. Well, I mean, it, it's it's tautological <laughs> in the way that all the best and most accurate and most useful um, theories are. I mean, you know, you know mm-hmm. two plus two equals four. It's it, it's like that. One plus one yeah. plus one plus one equals one plus one plus one plus one. It's just true. Equals whatever, whatever Evola says it equals. Yes, continue. I would also like to point out, and this is important practical advice, that so reaching this stage of making one's own law but not getting to the stage of, of acting according to a transcendent law with its nature rooted in being, you can get to the point that nature got to where it just it burned mm. him out. He, his body couldn't handle this tension. Another danger is possession, though. If you don't develop a relationship with, with the metaphysical, with the world of being, you, you can become possessed. <laughs> he says on page 63, <laughs> this unity with the transcendent is also the condition for preventing the process of self-unification from taking a regressive path. There is, in fact a possibility of a pathological unification of the being from below, as in the case of an elementary passion that takes over the whole person, organising all his faculties to its own ends. Cases of fanaticism and possession are no different in kind. And I see this to be, so this is a reference again to Revolt Against the Modern World, where people who are not born of a high stock, which is everyone today, (laughs) Uh, expressions of a demonic totem or a collection of demonic totems in the world of being. And if someone becomes degraded to a great degree, this demonic totem can start almost living through them with their body as an avatar of that Mm. demonic totem. And I can only see this as referring to that. Uh, If if anyone listening, though, actually knows what they're talking about with respect to Evelyn, please, (laughs) please let me know if my... Pet Evola theories are incorrect. <laughs> Fellow Evola scholars. <laughs> yeah, just don't let McKinsey know because they're paying me a lot of money to consult on Evola and I don't want that money to stop. I'm still writing that gravy train. <laughs> it's the practical applications of Evola knowledge. <laughs> 
Yes. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. So you've you've got to you've got to ascend once you've reached this stage of of of, of living according mm. to your own law. You have to ascend through an extreme event. Oftentimes, doesn't have to be an extreme event, but it often is some sort of event that that leads to a spiritual trauma and an ontological rupture. And you just you break through, like when you huff <laughs> a lot of DMT and you just smash through. That's, that's exa- not what Evelyn meant at all. Actually, that is that is completely specious comparison. <laughs> a crude but instructive analogy. Mm. Mm. Again, this is yeah, practical. exactly exactly. You mentioned before how the the differentiated man on his way to becoming integrated acts according to not so much what good and evil these these silly <laughs> concepts would have him believe. He doesn't orient himself based on these, but more based on what is right and wrong. And when someone is fully integrated. Once they have insight into the world of being, then, then they achieve this incredible freedom where they, they will behave in such a way as to fulfill some sort of objective of theirs. And they no longer consider their actions in terms of right and wrong, but in terms of mm. error. Is, is my action going to direct me towards my goal or away from my goal? So... Evola says on page 71, Pure action does not mean blind action. The rule is to care nothing for the consequences to the shifting individualistic feelings, but not in ignorance of the objective conditions that action must take into account in order to be as perfect as possible, and so as not to be doomed to failure from the start. One may not succeed, that is secondary, but it should not be owing to defective knowledge of everything concerning the conditions of efficacy, which generally comprise causality, the relations of cause to effect, and the law of concordant actions and reactions. So you, need, you, define, you define your actions as correct or incorrect with relation to this transcendently ordained objective that you have you've divined by, by integrating yourself. This gives, you, this gives you real freedom. So he says, by analogy, if someone is intending to make a risky alpine climb or a flight once he has heard a forecast of bad weather, he may either abandon or pursue it. In the latter case, he accepts the risk mm. from the start, but the freedom remains. No moral factor comes into play. And this is quite important in understanding Evola's view of how you should behave if you're the integrated man. You can see how things in the world of being are going to be affected by your mm. actions. And so even if, even if some, say, if some harm will come to your physical body, if you take a certain course of action, you can choose or not choose to take that course of action. And whether harm comes to your physical body or not is a risk that you have you've taken into account. You are still free because ultimately you don't care so much what happens. Yes, yes, because it, it it's not that we entirely do away with the ideas of something feeling positive or negative. It's just that they should not guide the action 
as a motive force. Because he says on page 73, yeah. If we assume that the being has reached a high grade of unification, everything resembling an inner sanction can be interpreted in the same terms. Positive feelings will arise in the case of one line of action, negative in the case of an opposite line, thus conforming to good or evil according to their meanings in a certain society, a certain social stratum, a certain civilization, and a certain epoch. Apart from purely external and social reactions, a man may suffer, feel remorse, guilt, or shame when he acts contrary to the tendency that still prevails in his depths. For the ordinary man, nearly always through hereditary and social conditioning, active in his subconscious, and which has only apparently been silenced by other tendencies and by the dictate of the physical I. Yeah. And he calls this invulnerability. Mm, yeah. When you, you just act, you act according to whatever objective function you've derived from the world of being. You are acting with invulnerability insofar as you cannot be swayed from your path because you've, mm. you've transcended those sorts of things. And what else do we have from Nietzsche? Uh, Nietzsche's <laughs> comparison of the Dionysian and Apollo yeah, Apollonian aspects yeah. from the birth of tragedy. Yeah. Surprise, surprise, Evola doesn't totally agree with it. Evola's got this particular state that he says the integrated man should have. He calls it a form of, of lucid inebriation. Mm, yeah. That's and great it's term. this it's this openness to experience that Nietzsche's Dionysian person would have. This openness to any sort of experience. However, he saw Nietzsche's description of the Dionysian man as not something to be aimed for because that Dionysian man is ultimately earthly and spiritual and not acting according to a higher law he identifies that with the with the apollonian and so he talks about apollonian dionysianism on page 76 <laughs> he says a special state of lucid inebriation that is connected with this entire orientation and is absolutely essential for the type of man under consideration because it takes the place of that animation that given a different world he would receive from an environment formed by tradition, thus filled with meaning, or else from the sub-intellectual adhe adhesion to emotion and impulses at the vital base of existence in pure bios. So, mm. an openness to experience that transforms all experience, even seemingly mundane experience, into some sort of, of right. It transforms it into this this apprehension of being that acts to nourish the integrated man. Yes, yes. And uh, it's the well, only source of nourishment, Evola says, that is available to this man in our, in a, our current time, the Kali Yuga. Yes, because, I mean, I might be misreading here, but uh, as I recall from um, The Birth of Tragedy, you know, Nietzsche sets up the dichotomy between you know, Dionysian experience, you know, uh, oh, I probably should chaos, the chaos and creativity and so forth, and then uh, Apollonian uh, thought, which is he associates with Socrates and playwrights like Euripides. Euripides. So there's a notion of uh, Apollonine, which means sort of uh, 
guided by the sense of order. And then there's uh, Dionysian, which I guess is uh, denoted by a sense of uh, openness, chaos, creativity, uh, things that have not previously existed. So I think what Evola might say is that Nietzsche set he chooses the opposite side to what we have traditionally um the side that western civilization has traditionally taken we've been nietzsche would say we've been trapped in an apollonine or an apollonian uh socratic uh, emphasis on order and he's turning the tables and putting the emphasis on the dionysian aspect of chaos and creativity and contingency but i think evola is say is saying no 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 you're still trapped in the prison of a dichotomy and he with his idea of lucid inebriation is able to uh, find that which connects these two spheres yeah yeah it ties into how so he he talks about how you you should act as being twofold so your actions should be at once what he describes as action without desire. So you're yeah. acting without regard for the consequences of an action in the material plane or the, the plane of becoming. And we talked about this before, how what you should be doing is, is acting in such a way as to fulfill whatever, whatever objective has been ordained by the world of being without yeah. worrying about what happens in the world of becoming. And that's action without desire. Mm. So you're, you're not actually desiring anything. Instead, you're acting in the only, almost the only possible way for an integrated man to act yep. in the correct way. And then there's action without acting, which is where you <laughs> act in such a way that... That this action comes from your transcendent being and therefore it doesn't alter the the it doesn't alter the character of your being because it is simply an expression of your being. It is your being being itself, which thereby doesn't change itself. And look, that's the practical advice <laughs> for how you should act. <laughs> God, we're, we're only halfway through the book and yet we've got so much practical advice already. I think it might make my head explode. <laughs> I mean, I'm feeling, so, I'm feeling very practical right now. We can mostly... Co let's, let's just skip most of the existentialist stuff because <laughs> I really don't think... No, so this, this section, part three, the dead end of existentialism doesn't need to be in the book. It should have been edited out. It is a dead end. Most like, <laughs> this is this is him complaining about the existentialists, which fine. I mean, that's that's all good. I don't like reading French writing much either, but <laughs> of French French and German. I mean, Heidegger <laughs> is maybe the most impenetrable, and largely because of he's impenetrable, <laughs> and mostly it seems like because he just won't tell you what he's thinking. <laughs> kind of defeats the purpose of him writing anything down. Um, <laughs> This is this is a a circuitous way, way of me saying that the bits on Heidegger become more relevant later in the book, and we should probably very briefly touch on them. But apart from those, I think we can just ignore the existentialist chapter because it doesn't actually offer much practical advice for how 
the practical prospective tiger rider should behave. It just makes criticisms of of the existentialists. Yeah, so I think one important thing is Heidegger's posture towards death, which I don't really understand because I've read only I've read only, you know, perfunctorily in in Heidegger and the odd secondary source introduction. But I mean it's sort of a crude you know, dumbing down way of putting it, but what I gather is the case in Heidegger is that he finds it essential for a being or a Dasein, a being there, to at all times act with the consciousness of death fully in front of him and to confront it as a both a subjective and an objective experience and for people to feel to feel the extreme subjective reality of death even as they apprehend apprehend the objective reality of it so i think heidegger might take uh take umbrage to you know callow atheists or perhaps uh, epicureans or lucretians who make claims like death is simply the same as what you were before you it's simply the same state as that which you were before you came into physical existence ergo it's nothing to be frightened of um he heidegger doesn't like that heidegger wants you to always have death in view and be sort of uh being towards death uh now i think that's what heidegger says uh, now, Evola takes exception to this because I think he thinks that Heidegger is still operating in the corporeal, uh, more egoistic, subjective mm. uh, uh, m- mode. I think, I, am I right? Is that your apprehension of both what Heidegger says and Evola's posture towards Heidegger? I know even less about Heidegger than you. I have a copy of being. <laughs> And nothingness, and being in time. It. <laughs> being in t- yeah, I can't even remember the name of the book. I think I read about ten pages and thought, "Fuck this!" this is a total waste of my time trying to work out what this man was trying to say. So I don't know. My knowledge of Heidegger is probably more informed by Evola's retelling of Heidegger than from Heidegger himself. All right, well, give it. Give us Evola's retelling of Heidegger then. So. For Evola, he says on page 86, with respect to Dasein, For Heidegger, the basis of Dasein is nothingness. One is only flung into the world as a mere possibility of being, in existence, for the entity that I am. The metaphysical (laughs) question concerns my own being. I I may either attain it or fail to do so. So, Evola seems to have read in Heidegger, which granted, because of Heidegger's ability to define his own terms is quite open to interpretation that being for Heidegger is something placed in front of a person and there's almost this it is a project that someone is working on during their life but won't reach until they they reach the point of death when they finally reach this this project placed in front of them and all they can do mm. while they're alive is chase this being placed in front of them, or if they fail to do that, live inauthentically. Mm. And living inauthentically is, at least as far as I understand it, living according to societal conventions, being tied up 
in in the mundanity of everyday life rather than chasing after your being placed in front of you. And so everyone's yeah, got a few problems it- with this. One, being is a, a transcendent dimension that is not something you chase. It is something that you cultivate within yourself, mm. at least in the modern world, when you're not integrated into a traditional society, which can give that meaning to you. It's, some, it's a connection that you can make internally. It's not something that you're always pursuing and is always out of reach. Mm. As well as this, he says that by introducing this concept of, of your being as something placed in front of you that you're pursuing, Heidegger is implying that there is some sort of pre-existing sense given to your life, but won't say where it's coming from. Or why it is the case. Now, Evola, I, I don't know if this is any better. Evola just <laughs> says that, well, obviously this project is ordained by the world of being. So Evola in some sense answers that question, but completely arbitrarily. I also don't know if he's reading Heidegger correctly, because I don't really know much about Heidegger. But that's why people listen to this podcast. <laughs> we're experts on these topics. For a scrupulous <laughs> it's analysis. Highly educational. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure. I'm actually, I'm literally not sure if this is something that I read in this book or somewhere else. Um, but I feel like Evola at one point said that the problem with Heidegger was that his idea of a throne Dasein that is always chasing itself as a being oriented towards death is another way of uh, stipulating the Socratic or Ciceronian or whatever maxim that to philosophize is to learn how to die. I think that's one of the issues he has with him is that Heidegger is... Yeah. <laughs> Heidegger is still operating. I think, that, I think that's in the War, actually. <laughs> or at least in the latest McKinsey report, or the forthcoming one. I think the I, have, I think the entirety of Ride the Tiger is in The Art of War. Actually, I forget, <laughs> I forget which part of The Art of War it's in. But the, entire, the entire corpus of human knowledge, I think, is from Sun Tzu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it's, but he takes issue with the idea of an ego reconciling itself to death rather than in mm. some way dissolving his consciousness into a permanent state that encompasses, well, encompasses death insofar as death is a subset of being. Mm. I'm not sure if that made any sense. (laughs) Yeah, look, Heidegger doesn't make much sense. Evola doesn't make much sense. And so when you have the Evolian analysis of Heidegger, you can't, no matter how practical it is, which I want to reinforce it is practical. It, it, it just doesn't necessarily make sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's, uh, how about we get onto part four, dissolution of the individual? Because the, the existentialist part is just not that, not that helpful for a tiger riding candidate, but things do become a bit more helpful again. <laughs> so, I mean, is it at this point? I mean, look, I, I know that Evelyn goes on to criticize lots of different things but is it at this oh no he still goes he still covers phenomenology after this 
But I mean, yeah. I'm just trying to think, at what point in the book does he finish with the philosophical criticism of his intellectual antecedents and inferiors and then get on mm. to the project of being more positive, if there is such a point in the book, because I'm not sure I could locate it. They're, they tend to be blended together. Mm. Him, him talking smack about his intellectual forebears and <laughs> him drip-feeding you practical advice on how to integrate yourself and orient to above. But part four, dissolution of the individual, is him, he talks about modern individualism and what the integrated man or the, the prospective integrated man can learn from these things. Mm. And he starts out by saying that a lot of people today, the book, I think this book was published in 61, written in 1960. So in the 60s, there mm. was a crisis of individualism, which he said that is just a bourgeois problem because individualism itself is a silly bourgeois concept. Yep. And look, a tiger rider doesn't have time for that because the tiger rider understands what, what individualism is. He says on page 107, <laughs> One of the principal and most apparent aspects of modern decadence refers, in fact, to... <laughs> I just love how he always says, I love the audacity fact. of in fact. <laughs> or as to a consequence the of the previous. Of individualism as a consequence of the collapse and destruction of the former organic and traditionally hierarchical structures, which have been replaced primarily by the atomic multiplicity of individuals in the world of quantity, <laughs> that is to say, the masses. So individualism really is just a byproduct of the atomization of our society that we no longer have this unmoving center that 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 serves a polar and pontifical function linking to the world of being. So we're dissolving into individuals. Hmm. And that that when he was writing he said was under assault by the next ob obvious stage, obvious in human development, which is collective, collectivist totalitarianism, where even this idea of the individual is dissolved and subsumed totally into the mass, the rub, the rabble, pure, mm. pure quantity rather than quality. And so the crisis of individualism really was, in his telling, the transfer from a largely bourgeois world to a communist or totalitarian world. He also he, he makes this distinction between an individual and a person. And yes, yeah. An individual is this abstract or formless being with no, no inherent sense of hierarchy that's close to above. Mm, yeah. And a person, on the other hand, is so he says it, it, it's related to persona, which was a mask worn by traditional actors, and this mask is non-individual. Mm. Different, different entities can put on this mask and assume a persona, assume a personhood, as implied by this mask, mm. and it shapes the being of the wearer, and it's open to above. Yeah, yeah and absolutely, yeah. Because there's, absolu there's, absolutely. There's, there's, yeah, I mean, this is, this is perfect truth. <laughs> But, I mean, he, he summarises it all quite neatly on page 111. And you know, forgive me for the long um, you know, spray of Evola here. 
but he says, <laughs> two concepts of impersonality exist, related through analogy and at the same time through opposition. On the personal level, one is inferior, the other superior. One has for a limit the individual in the formlessness of a numerical and undifferentiated unity that through multiplication produces the anonymous mass. The other is the culmination typical of a sovereign being, the absolute person. <laughs> mm. <laughs> the absolute person. <laughs> <laughs> That's not who I want to be. <laughs> absolute. Yeah, and so when you are when you are open to above, you assume you assume personhood or you assume personahood in that mm. you wear these masks which shape your being in I'm not sure if it's an intentional or an unintentional way. If once you are integrated you assume a persona or it whether whether you voluntarily assume a persona or whether it's just bestowed upon you by the world of being but whatever the case you cease to be an individual without hierarchy and instead become a person yep uh <laughs> and <laughs> well should i should i just should should i let evola speak from his own mouth because he taught, this is to give some context to what is the absolute person. He follows on mm. from my previous quote by saying, the, the latter possibility, that of the absolute person, rests on a foundation of active anonymity that appears in traditional civilizations, defining a position opposed to every activity, creativity, or affirmation based merely on the I. And the aforementioned conversion, apparently paradoxical, of the person into an impersonal being makes itself known in the fact that a grandeur of the personality indeed exists, in which the work is more visible than the creator, the objective more than the subjective, where in the human field something is reflected of that nudity and purity that belongs to the grand forces of nature, in history, art, politics, spiritual disciplines, and in all the degrees of existence. One could speak of a civilization of anonymous heroes, but the style of anonymity is also realized in the speculative domain, where it goes without saying <laughs> that what is thought according to the truth cannot be signed with the name of the individual. One also recalls the custom of abandoning one's own name and taking another that no longer refers to the individual, to the man, but to the function of a superior function or superior vocation where the personality is summoned to a higher obligation, for instance, royalty and pontificate, monastic orders, and so on. Now, I'm not sure that resolves your um, temporal question of what follows what. It certainly didn't for me. But I think mm -hmm. that gives some context to the idea of the absolute person. <laughs> 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 yep. <laughs> Got it. Yep. <laughs> Actually, the next. So he, I, I think he's, he is saying that the, the tiger riding candidate should be trying to cultivate an element of anonymity, but it needs to be the right anonymity because 
there are two types. There's this one type of anonymity, which is living as an individual subsumed in the mass. This, this standardized, flat, uniform anonymity. Mm. Or you can live the anonymous life of a trad man, yep. an expression of the world of being, wearing a persona, this mask which, which yep. is given by the world of being, which is supra-individual. Indeed, yeah. So I guess that's the that's the that's the TLDR. That's the practical message to take away from this chapter. That's the the nugget of yeah, actionable yeah. wisdom. It, it's it's if you are to subsume your ego, it ought to be through a royal, pontifical, or monastic order. I and think that's, yeah, the that, that's exactly that's exactly what I've put in my McKinsey report about <laughs> how to live. <laughs> As, as the Evolian man in the Kali Yuga, that you you need to cultivate this persona-based form of anonymity. Mm. And just like they, yep. they love yep. me there. They they said the check. Thank you for for clarifying this. <laughs> McKinsey Jack. serves differentiated men the world over, and all they need is some practical advice to integrate. And that's you, Jack. You are the one dispensing with actionable advice. Integrated man of being consultant. <laughs> Look, there's management consultancy and there's management of being consultancy. And I'm, I'm a management of being consultant. <laughs> That's my review of this book. <laughs> the next bit actually was um, destructions and liberations in the new realism was was a bit more practical, a little bit more practical in that it's Evola taking a look around at the cultural landscape and saying, okay, what from this can the differentiated or, I mean, all things going well, Integrated man, take from the world. He starts off by quoting Ernst Junger, which, look, of course, of course he did. Wait, wait, wait. Can you explain for me and the audience who Ernst Junger was? Because I just don't know. Ernst Junger was... He fought as a soldier in the First and Second World Wars, although didn't like the totalitarian bent of the Nazi regime, and I think was implicated in a plot to kill Hitler. But basically, he was a highly decorated and, by all accounts, highly effective soldier. I forget if he, were Germ if he was German or Austrian, who believed that war could act as, as an impetus for a man to become perfected, that in, in mm. war, people become heroic in these life-threatening situations, and that it was possible, almost not not in the same way that Evola talks about becoming an integrated man, as Evola makes clear, Junger got it wrong. But in <laughs> some sense, Junger talked about how, in an era of mechanized warfare, which is so inhuman, that the individual combatant would get spiritually shattered unless they passed into a new form of existence where <laughs> they were extremely objective and lucid and also able to act and stay upright 
and exist beyond the categories of of individuals, of ideals, values, and the goals of bourgeois civilization. This person who'd passed through the horrors of 20th century mechanized warfare mm. would, yeah, they transcended bourgeois values. So, so and would that we've be actually an been asked a few times to cover some of Ernst Junger's writings on this podcast. So there'll probably be an episode after this where we actually do go into oh. more detail on Junger. Would that be an example of moving from the vulgar, undifferentiated form of anonymity to the perfect person form of anonymity? It's definitely groping in that direction. I mean, Junger <laughs> wasn't Evola, so no, he was no. wrong. Yeah. But yeah. He, he was doing the he's best directionally with the tools correct. He had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's direct. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Junger's books, of course, are part of the bibliography of my McKinsey report on integration <laughs> of the differentiated man. Footnote 112. <laughs> Ernst Junger. <laughs> he also talks about <laughs> Evola actually has this so reading Evola, Evola's got the ability to look at anything and see symbolism in it it's a, <laughs> an, an amazing ability that was actually relatively restrained in this book but I had, I had Vietnam flashbacks to <laughs> when I read this quote on page 115. Some have spoken of the metaphysics of the machine and of new archetypes heralded in the perfect functional forms of our time. If this is meaningless on the prosaic plane of everyday modern reality, it may have meaning on its own symbolic plane, where one certainly does not envisage mechanization, rationalization, and utility, but rather the value of form and the love of form. Here the style of objectivity should not be confused with that of disanimation, but can be taken along the lines already mentioned of impersonal perfection in every work. So what he's doing is he looked at this movement, this movement, I think in Germany between the First and Second World Wars, which I'd never heard of, called New Realism, where they, they fetishised machines, where they looked for objectivity, as distinct and free from any emotion or subjectivity. And Evola looked at that and goes, okay, well, the Tiger Rider can take some lessons from this in that the new realists too are trying to live beyond good and evil. And in fact, they have the machine as a symbol and a symbol that the, the Tiger Rider can learn from of impersonal perfection in every work. So yeah, he's a practical yes. guy. He looked. He's he's looking around yeah. at the cultural landscape of the twentieth century and saying, "Okay, well, what lessons can a tiger rider learn from all of these fallen cultural forms?" And he's finding them. He's a look. He yeah. When life gives you lemons, make lemonade. That Sun Tzu <laughs> said that, and I, I live by that Sun Tzu quote every I mean, day. or as Sun Tzu also said, "You got to dance with the girl. What brung you?" Yeah, I forget which page of The Art of War that, that, that quote is, but I remember reading that. Yeah, that was, that was a really good Sun Tzu quote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> and look, he basically for the rest of this, this chapter, he talks about how 
the new the new realists were good in that they they talked about living beyond good and evil, but they had no connection to the world above, mm. and yep. that you know it's the kiss of death. They got, <laughs> they got some of the way there, but ultimately, if you don't if you don't go through ontological fracture, and this is what I always say to people when I meet them: if you don't if you don't go beyond living beyond good and evil, if you don't suffer this ontological fracture, you'll either end up as nature, you'll burn yourself out, or you'll suffer possession. Yeah, I, I mean, I actually, I, one I, or the other. I actually recall you. I mean, for listeners, a uh, bit of context here. I was recently married, and I recall Jack was one of my um, groomsmen, and that was the piece of advice that he offered to me before um, I was married. And I must say, um, I can't say that I'm necessarily uh, all the way there as a differentiated, let alone a integrated man. But it's advice, practical advice. That has stuck with me. Exactly. People still fondly remember my drunken speech where I described the need for your wife to circle around you as Edward, the virile, unmoving centre, and she would act as the waters, as the changeable, telluric, feminine nature to be shaped by your virile law. And I think people really liked that. Uh, they... They liked it enough that they didn't speak to me again. I just think they're still they're still processing these Evolian truths. Which actually, I mean, we have talked about um, using Evola as a uh, self help guru, but I think there would also be an associated industry for marriage celebrants that enact the Evolian <laughs> rites. Don't you think? <laughs> Maybe that's what we should do. (laughs) Be the change you want to see in the world. world. (laughs) Sun Tzu said that, and that was such a good part of the art of war. (laughs) Do 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 you pledge? Do you pledge to tame her chaotic, telluric, feminine uh, being till death do you part? I do. I do. Mm, yeah. But, I mean, we, we should define what the I... <laughs> this is when you, you grab the microphone from the celebrant <laughs> and have a lengthy discussion on the nature of I and that your I comes from the place of being. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, what's the next part? The animal idea, the sentiment of nature. <laughs> mm. Oh man, this, I remember he's got this great quote on the modern world of how the integrated man can use the concept of speed as a symbol. <laughs> on page 121, this is peak Evola. He says, like the machine itself, some situations of speed in the technologized world can have a virtual, symbolic, and realizable dimension, often involving risk, the greater the speed. The more it requires a superior lucidity, bringing into play a higher type of calmness and internal immobility. In this context, the intoxication of speed can even change its nature. It can pass from one plane to another and have some traits in common with the type of intoxication of which I have spoken, describing the state of integrated Dionysism 
<laughs> if this were the proper place, I could develop this thing <laughs> much further. <laughs> this is practical. I mean, this is what practicality looks like. No, I mean, now, okay. Speaking of intoxication, I am quite intoxicated, so I don't really understand that. Jack, could you give us a dumbed-down version for your inebriated interlocutor? <laughs> so, Evler in this chapter two is looking through what sort of things from our technological society the integrated or differentiated man can take. Mm. And Evler's, Evler's saying, okay, so... What are the characteristics of a differentiated or integrated man? Well, they have an incredible amount of control over their own passions mm. and over themselves because they are acting purely from being. And in the case of speed, if <laughs> the, the integrated man should not be given a driver's license, because what <laughs> seems to be saying is driving at extremely high speeds. If you're doing... 210 kilometers an hour driving on the wrong way down the eastern freeway, then that requires a great deal of self-control. And the faster you're going, the more you have to control yourself. The, the greater lucidity you need. And this, this combines the Dionysian and Apollonian natures. The Dionysian intoxication with this sense of speed, this openness to this this raw experience, but the Apollonian centeredness, the ability to control yourself and remain lucid in, in the face of this experience. So, <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know about you. Evolian practicality. I, I don't know about you. Drive over the speed limit. I mean, I, I, I often drive while inebriated, but when I'm pulled over, I offer the absolutely, you know, uh, watertight excuse that I'm driving in a state of lucid inebriation. And then the cops <laughs> let me off. Yeah, Practical. exactly. Instead of writing you a ticket, they just hand you a copy of Ride the Tiger. <laughs> <laughs> the police car just has stacks of copies of Ride the Tiger in the back seat. Just pop the boot. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. It's quite interesting, actually. So what Evola does here is he talks about how, how in the past we um, there there were a few ways for someone to achieve an ascetic existence, and mm. by doing so, at attach themselves or come into communion with the world above, and they could do this in a few ways. One was nomadicism so they just they wander around and don't attach themselves to any one place another was isolation they would go and live as a hermit away from other people and Evola, ever the practical man looks at our technological society and goes well actually both of these things are being achieved but in ways that you wouldn't expect so mm -hmm. being a nomad we are so deracinated where we're, we've had so many of our, our fundamental beliefs pulled out from under us by the death of God. And additionally, we're able to travel so easily that by flying around, by flying to Bali from Melbourne you know, on Jetstar or something, a cheap flight, we can achieve in some way nomadicism. We can be nomads because of how the world works today.
as well as that in huge cities we do achieve a level of anonymity you're almost like a hermit living in the cave with with the anonymity of a a very large city and so evola has taken from our environment he's taken the teachings of tradition and applied them to today and given to us these precepts he said you actually can imitate in some ways the transcendence achieved by ascetics of the past it's incredible amazing yeah that's that's actually really useful actually <laughs> <laughs> really useful <laughs> he says in a, on page 121 in a large city in mass society among the almost unreal swarming of faceless beings, an essential sense of isolation or of detachment often occurs naturally, perhaps even more than in the solitude of moors and mountains. What I have hinted at concerning recent technology that annihilates distances and the planetary spread of today's horizons feeds inner detachment, superiority, calm transcendence, <laughs> while acting and moving in the vast world. One finds oneself everywhere and yet at home nowhere. Theresa May, in her Citizens of Nowhere speech, I do recall her holding up a copy of Ride the Tiger and <laughs> slamming it on the lectern over and over again. I have a feeling she might have been channeling this particular part of Evola. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the same way that Margaret Thatcher was reputed to have uh, pulled out a copy of The Constitution of Liberty by Friedrich Hayek mm. and banged it on mm. the um, lectern or whatever and said this is what we believe i'm pretty sure theresa may did exactly the same thing with uh cavalcare el tigre <laughs> she is a notorious ebolian yeah 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 notorious. It's, been much, it's excited much comment <laughs> yeah the um another really good part of this chapter so a lot of this chapter is is him complaining about this bourgeois reaction to technological society of a return to nature and as anyone who knows evola will be able to tell you that returning to nature is a huge red flag for evola <laughs> because he sees it as a not as a return to a a prouder time but a regression and degeneration to an earthly telluric or a uh, lunar yep. feminine quality to, right. to something even more undifferentiated yeah he doesn't like that at all. Like, say, Thoreau or something doing a Walden, Evola would see that as pure degeneracy. Mm. And <laughs> an excellent part of this, this chapter is where... Um, so as I was describing earlier, how the, the, the prospective tiger rider can take modern transportation technology the ability to get from one place to another easily and use that to, to perfect themselves, to cultivate almost a nomadicism. He, he does talk about the downside of being able to move around the world more easily. Mm. He says on page 124, In the end, the phase of nature for the plebeians arrives. With the breakout of the masses, the common people everywhere, with or without their automobiles, the travel agencies, the <laughs> Dopova 
Polavori. I don't know what that is. It's some, <laughs> some foreign word and I don't speak foreign. And all the rest. Nothing is spared. The naturists and nudists form the extreme of this phenomenon. The beaches teeming insect-like with thousands and thousands of male and female bodies, offering to the glance an insipid, almost complete nudity, are another symptom. Still another is the assault on the mountains by cable cars, funiculars, <laughs> chairlifts and ski lifts. All this is part of the regime of final disintegration in our epoch. There is no point in dwelling on it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good thing that Evelyn never saw the advent of Ryanair and EasyJet, which allowed just the teeming masses to easily and cheaply get to where they wish to in Europe. <laughs> I I love imagining Evela on a beach yeah. on a warm summer day, just glaring at women in bikinis. Put some fucking clothes on. I, I just, you can imagine I, him just spitting at them. I think it's some of the part of the charm of this book is when he does lapse, or at least uh, you know, bend down to grasp the ordinary and the everyday. Like the discussion of cable cars <laughs> is quite charming. I find. <laughs> The um, he does say though there is something that. Oh no! I would say there's something from bourgeois naturalism that the, the tiger rider can derive, but he does talk about how, the integrated man should relate to nature. Mm. He says, and it, it it's, actually consistent with the living beyond good and evil, yeah mindset. He says on page 125, for this human type. There can be no landscape more beautiful than another, but some landscapes can be more distant, boundless, calm, cool, harsh, and primordial than the others. He hears the language of things of the world not among trees, brooks, beautiful gardens, before oleographic sunsets and romantic moonlight, but rather in deserts, rocks, steppes, glaciers, murdy Nordic fjords, shout out to Varg, the implacable tropical sun, Great ocean currents. In fact, everything primordial and inaccessible. <laughs> in Evelyn's fact. just the kind of cunt who'd probably go hiking in somewhere that he knows will be unpleasant and then brags to everyone afterwards like, oh, there were no tourists there. <laughs> it was really authentic. <laughs> well, he says, he says, it naturally follows that the man with this sentiment of nature relates to it more actively almost by absorbing its own pure, perceived force, than in a vague, lax, and rambling contemplation. I mean, <laughs> as he says, it naturally follows. It naturally follows. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I should yeah. probably also add, actually, when Evola uses the term active and passive, he has quite, quite specific meanings. When you do something actively, you are doing it with your being, and when you do it passively, you are not. So when I actually, having said that, when I say he does it with a specific meaning, he does specifically define it, but then the the meaning behind doing something with your being is itself much vaguer. So, well, well I guess I guess it would mean specificity that it's, pointing at something vague. Yeah, it's not. It's not. You're not doing it in the sense, in the vulgar sense of becoming. You're doing it with your being. I think that's a pretty mm -hmm. clear distinction. <laughs> yeah, as I get into the, the more fun bit of the book where he talks more about like the world around him, the book gets more and more amusing from now on. 
It was it was amusing in a high-minded intellectual sense before in his wacky interpretation of Nietzsche, but now it's him complaining about women in bikinis, which appeals to me much more. <laughs> where are we up? To? Oh, next bits of the bit where he talks about science. This is really good. Oh he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. So surprise, wait, surprise. We're, we're moving. Kind of misses the point to the, to the bit on the procedures of modern science. Okay, I mean, <laughs> I think I, allu- I alluded to this to this earlier um, when he had when he when I mentioned that uh, he, he he's very concerned about the abstract reduction of things to numbers because I think yeah that is an operation in the world of becoming, not in the world of being, and he, he it's it's hard to precisely say what he means but my impression at least is that when you describe uh processes or you know phenomena such as the earth revolving around the sun uh he 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 finds this perhaps descriptively useful in the world of becoming but really it's neither here nor there because the level of abstraction involved robs it of its uh, spiritual or being dimension. So I think I mentioned earlier that he takes great exception to uh, the idea of being able to render notions like the speed of light with reference to numbers and thereby missing what light actually is in its very being. Mm. Yeah, he's got a few problems with science. And I think the most the most fundamental problem he has is an epistemological problem, mm. which. So I'll I'll let Evola speak for himself. Yes. I will put on the Evolian persona and read his quote. Yeah. Um, from page one hundred and thirty-one, he says, "In fact, the concept of truth in the traditional sense is already alien to modern science, mm. which concerns itself solely with hypotheses and formulae <laughs> that can predict with the best approximation the course of phenomena and relate them to a certain unity. As it is not a question of truth, but no matter less of seeing than of touching, the concept of certainty in modern science is reduced to the maximum probability mm, yeah. that all scientific certainties have an essentially statistical character is openly recognised by every scientist, mm. and more categorically than ever in recent subatomic physics. The system of science resembles a net that draws ever tighter around a something that, in itself, remains incomprehensible, mm. with the sole intention of subduing it for practical ends. So, this is my belief, at least, that there is a truth external to human beings, that we, we probably asymptotically approach that <laughs> truth with scientific theories validated by experimental evidence, but we're not going to reach that absolute truth because we're approaching it through, say, human sense perception. We are formulating particular theories from a purely human perspective because we can't step outside of ourselves. Mm. What we generate as knowledge are are effectively descriptions of the world that become, in the best-case scenario, so strongly predictive that we would say, yes, well, this is describing something exterior to ourself. This Mm. is approaching truth at a close enough distance that 
we're willing to at least colloquially describe it as true. Mm. And Evola's problem with this is that it seems to be that basically scientists or modern science is not saying we know this for sure. And when yep. I say scientist, I don't mean the I fucking love science New York Times crowd who <laughs> take science to be effectively a religion surrogate. I mean actual scientists who yep. are practicing science in that you perform experiments to try to eliminate competing theories and formulate a theory that is as close to true as you can get it to be. Mm. It's not a settled body of knowledge. It's just, as Evola says, a body of knowledge that is the most likely thing to correspond to external reality. I don't see a problem with that. I just see it as an acknowledgement of the human condition, that our access to the world is limited by our senses, by our ability to think. No, 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 no. Despite the no, fact no. that we, we probably are Turing complete in our brains. No, no, no. no. See, th this is where you're going all wrong, though, because, mm. it, because it's, I mean, yes, you might, you, you might be right in referring to the uh, limitations of our sensory apparatus, but the important thing to note is that this is fundamentally beside the point. Now, I haven't read much of Revolt <laughs> Against the Modern World, but I do recall in the opening to it, uh, he describes his, uh, let's say, historiographical method and his critique of what is con contem what contemporaries call his historical practice today. He says, the problem with history and trying to reach back into the prehistorical record is that we're using fundamentally the wrong tools. So if we rely on the tools of material evidence, say, that can only take us <laughs> so as far back as the historical material evidentiary record goes. So you're using the wrong one. You need to go back beyond that, and that can only be done through analysis in the symbolic plane of being. And I think that's the same mm. thing here. The same gripe he has with the modern historiographical method is the gripe he has with modern science. It's not to say that it's, you know, I mean, uh, it's not to say that it's not you know, useful or unuseful. It's just simply beside the point. It's for, as you would say, yeah. smooth brain <laughs> <laughs> nitwits. I was surprised you didn't know that word. Well, yes. I mean, I was uh, greatly edified to learn the uh, the meaning of it, but it's but it's been it's been enfolded into my um, everyday vocabulary. But I think that's that's the thing he's getting at. It's it's just simply beside the point. It's not more true, less true, approximately true. The scientific method is just not where you want to be spending your time. If you're doing that, you're wasting your time. Get a life. Yeah, yeah. Basically, it's. He does, he does seem to get quite angry, though. And when I say quite angry, he, the sections on science are long. <laughs> science really, really upset him. <laughs> he doesn't like that science doesn't have an objective basis. Instead, it tries to measure phenomena in the world of becoming. What it should be doing is instead reading ancient myth and then through the exact same process that Evola arrived at truth from ancient myth, decide that there is an objective world of being that has the same structure as Evola has decided that it has. <laughs> Evola's problem is that science doesn't say that it has 
all of the answers about everything instead instead opting for this statistical method what it should do is just just say that it's right <laughs> say yeah. that it has all of it it needs to have he the then has a lot of problems with effectively language mm-hmm. like so he he complains about how modern physics is algebraized that <laughs> more and more it uses mathematics to describe everything the thing is though that Say all languages are ultimately tools that you use to impart meaning. And mathematics is a particular linguistic tool that's most effective at describing the phenomena as found in physics. You, yeah, I mean, you, I guess you could try to explain uh, Einstein's equations of, of, say, general and special relativity using, using say, English. Mm. But... They are much more effectively described using mathematics. And he takes real issue with people not using languages that he's comfortable with to describe modern physics. Yes, yes. But, I mean, again, to, to, to uh, take the true and Evolian perspective, I mean, what you describe as you know, mathematical language being the best language to describe it, I mean, the mathematical mm. language is a... A highly abstracted language that reduces uncertainty. Um, it doesn't, yeah. You know, it doesn't. So, so what it does is, is it just reduces the world, the world of phenomena, to a very discrete sort of set of objects or concepts that you're dealing with at any given time. It can't encompass the grand magnificence of being. So it's mm. it's really just the most rudimentary sort of language, and it's not the kind of language that. Evola would deal in because he can encompass all of being at once. And it's a it's a, a quantitative language, and he's much more interested in quality than quantity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got in his <laughs> I mean no no no. Who, who wouldn't be in favor of quality over quantity? I mean <laughs> I want a quality language. Only a degenerate Democrat. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Someone who, who believes in democracy would yeah. believe in that sort of thing. But if you believe in a world ordered according to the world of being with a strong caste system and powerful hierarchies, then yeah. no, you'd, you would want a language that deals in quality rather than quantity. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, again, it's, it's, it's again analogous to the difference between you know, the vulgar, undifferentiated individual and the ultimate person. You know, you need to use mm-hmm. the language that encompasses the the qualitative being. You need you need a language that gets at what you really need to know. And science doesn't do that. Mathematics doesn't do that. It can't it can't get at what you really need to know, which is in the realm of being. Yeah. He's got this good quote on page 138 about the the mindset of someone under the influence of science. This is in the the chapter Covering Up Nature (laughs) Phenomenology, Mm. where he says, what, for example, could the symbol of the sunset of a dynasty, like the Japanese, mean to him when he knows scientifically what the sun is, merely a star, at which one can fire... At which one can even fire missiles? (laughs) Just that jump? (laughs) Just Evolian I can, I can shoot free association. <laughs> <laughs> I like this, that if you think scientifically, 
you can no longer understand things metaphorically. <laughs> it's it's either or. You, you can only have one or the other. Yeah, I think you're yeah. fucked then, Jack. I'm fucked. <laughs> or at least you've got a long journey back. You've been down the wrong road. I mean, I guess that's the thing. Luckily, you read this book or you read Evola in the, at this point in time. Mm. You could have read it later in your life, at which point the journey back would have been longer. But at least now you can start retracing your steps and get back on the Evolian road eventually. It's not going to be easy, but you'll be able to do it. This is part of my rehabilitation process. Yeah, yeah, that's right. God, actually, here's a quote. Here's something that I agreed with Evola on. He says, It is hardly worth mentioning the absurdity or the disarming naivety of that modern social ideology that makes science a sort of substitute for religion, giving it the task of showing man the way to happiness and progress and sending him on that way. So there's something. <laughs> it's... There's a place where we agree. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, but so lest we dwell too long on the, um, I don't know, the, the perfect truth of Evola's critique of the scientific method and science in general, uh, are there, what, what, is there anything else we need to focus on on his critique of science or have we really covered it? No, we can move on. And then this <laughs> chapter two, he talks about Husserl a lot. Oh, yh- yeah, yeah. I don't, okay. don't really need to. I, I haven't read anything by Husserl, so I can't offer anything that interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I really offered anything that interesting about any of the thinkers we've discussed. But even less. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've only read a little bit of Husserl. Um, and I'm not sure if this will help or not for context. But as I recall Edmund Husserl, uh, his entire project was an attempt to render the subjective the subjective experience objective by describing every phenomena from a subjective point of view uh, by describing every possible angle of subjective vision such that you have every single possible angle of subjective vision and thereby have a complete subjective picture so he go in one I can't remember what the name of his main work is, but there's this excruciating passage where he describes every possible angle by which you might perceive a wooden chair. And he just goes through it. He just lists uh, perspective after perspective after perspective because he just thinks if you get enough of these subjective angles of vision and put them together, you have joined the objective and the subjective. Like you make an objective vision out of a subjective vision by simply aggregating all the possible subjective visions. Now, I'm not sure if that's of any use to our listeners. <laughs> in the con, well, it's useful to our listeners in that it ties into Evolian practicality. So, <laughs> in the same way that Nietzsche talking about living beyond good and evil with reference to your morality was useful for the integrated man. What Husserl says about perceiving the world is similarly useful in that the integrated man should be looking at the world and experience without without this moral overlay or without the overlay of concepts. You yeah. should just be perceiving what you perceive. In, in that sense, it is a living beyond good and evil of sensory perception. Mm. 
Even better though, so this is I mean, this, <laughs> this is just pure practicality. If you do that enough, so Husserl, at least according to Evola, said that when you when you reduce the world or phenomenologically destroy your perceived your perception so that you're only perceiving what is what is purely there, you're eventually going to get to this state where you're you're almost seeing the meaning behind something mm. transcendently. Or you might start perceiving the transcendental I mm. or your pure self. And Evola looks at that and goes, ah, okay, well, Husserl was a, a, a stupid modern, but he's getting at something here where we can manifest our own super individual self through a similar process of stripping away all all of our all of our conceptual overlay on experience and eventually you get to the point where you can start seeing the the imminent content of meaning yep. of something the the profound dimension evel calls it the multi-dimensionality of experience you've stripped everything away you look at something and you see the inner and the outer meeting you see the world of becoming but you see behind it the world of being that is projecting itself onto this becoming yes so that's yes. the that's the practical takeaway that's the, yes. the actionable insight from yeah. the phenomenologists because because um i think maybe a, a simple way of putting it is that uh, he values Husserl insofar as Husserl seeks uh, an unmediated perspective unmediated by any kind of uh, arbitrary or unnecessary philosophical concepts so on page 143 and keeping the idea of seeing the chair from every single angle at once in your mind he says Husserl's philosophy also seeks to liberate the direct experience of reality from all the theories problems apparently precise concepts and practical ends that hide it from our minds also from any abstract idea about what what might be behind it either in philosophical terms like essence or Kant's thing in itself, or in scientific ones. From the objective viewpoint, this almost revives the Nietzschean aspiration to banish any beyond or any other world, while from the corresponding subjective viewpoint, it revives the ancient principle of the epoch, that is, the suspension of any judgment, any individual interpretation, any application of concepts and predicates to experience. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> the, the practicality is is astonishing. Yeah. I've, um, well, I mean, that's why McKinsey's so interesting. <laughs> and they're so interested in me specifically because I can take these practical insights and communicate them. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm, I'm gifted like that. Because and <laughs> you can communicate without, the, um, without being hamstrung by the intellectual overlay of concepts. You can just communicate directly, unmediated Except communication. Except me not knowing what I'm doing is a real boon. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> how about how about we talk about the sickness of European culture, oh. which, as it happens, is the the, the title of chapter twenty one, <laughs> where basically Evola talk Evola traces the beginning of the degradation of European culture to the breakup of the Holy Roman Empire. So. <laughs> Anyone well, who is even 
passingly acquainted with Evola will know that he loves empire in the same way that an organic traditional society is organized with at its unmoving virile center yes a a transcendent priestly king in whom the in whom the temporal and spiritual authority are vested who has who's serving the pontifical function between the worlds of being and becoming and from whose spiritual authority flows flows the uh, the organizing principle of being through the caste system of that society uh, Evola viewed that almost as he, he viewed an empire as the same way that you have this this central authority this this spiritual king who unifies spiritually a large amount of land and even disparate cultures and races who are made into the same spiritual culture and race through the power through the power of being Absolutely. and yeah the last the last gasp of that in Europe was the Holy Roman Empire which which fell apart because in part because of the disgusting degraded catholic church during the investiture crisis which you know, i i still haven't forgiven them for jack jack um I, I think this is this is where you are uniquely positioned to offer our audience a bit of um context here because you are currently residing in what was once at least close to the seat of the Holy Roman Empire. So for our audience, <laughs> could you describe what the Holy Roman Empire was and why it fulfills Evola's criteria of the, um, I guess, perfect empire or platonic empire or what have you, or Revolian Empire? I really don't understand this part of history much. I think it was in the year 800 that Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Empire and began the empire. Mm. And... And look, it was good then. <laughs> of course, we weren't living in a golden age at that stage in the year 800. Things had definitely degraded since the days of Hyperborea and Atlantis. But <laughs> Europe was still pretty good because it was united spiritually under this empire. However, the, the empire started to lose power and eventually, eventually really ran into problems I think in the eleven, I think the investiture controversy was in the eleventh century, where basically it was a fight between the Holy Roman Empire and the the Pope, between who could appoint bishops and abbots, mm -hmm. whether the Pope, the Emperor, or the two in some sort of consultation, and it got really out of hand, and led to the the wars between the Guelphs and Ghibellines, <laughs> and. Evola loves Ghibellinism. He keeps talking about it. The Ghibellines were the faction, at least initially, who allied themselves with the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, <laughs> this whole thing is too complicated for me to really give justice to <laughs> because I don't know that much about it. And also, it would be a much longer podcast <laughs> if we went into the specifics of the investiture controversy. I, I just saw that <laughs> as a good opportunity to throw you in the soup. <laughs> now that I've demonstrated my ignorance, which I have not done during the preceding three hours of this podcast, the, the, the breakup of this empire represented the breakup of any sort of centralizing spiritual authority, and it exerted a centrifugal force 
Evola loves centrifugaling <laughs> as a metaphor. Yeah. Where people in Europe started to develop their own cultures, their own languages, own ways of life in response to this breaking up of the, the virile center of empire. And the, the process of dissolution has reached its terminal stage today where we've got a totally atomized society. He's got this quote on page 151, which, which describes where this centrifugal force has led to. <laughs> These are the consequences of one of the dogmas of progressive thought, the unassailable freedom of science and of scientific research, which is a simple euphemistic way to indicate and legitimise the development of one activity dissociated from the whole. Mm. As an aside, he's all about organic wholes yeah. and anything dissociated is bad. <laughs> That freedom is not unlike the freedom of culture celebrated as a victory, with which the active processes of dissolution likewise manifest in an inorganic civilization. One of the most typical expressions of the neutralization of such a culture is the antithesis between culture and politics. Pure art and pure culture are supposed to have nothing to do with politics. In the direction of literary liberalism and humanism, separation is often turned into overt opposition. There is a well-known intellectual and humanist type who fosters an almost hysterical intolerance <laughs> for anything referring to the political world, state ideals and authority, strict discipline, war, power, and domination, and denies them any spiritual or cultural value. So you, starting in the year 800 with the Holy Roman Empire, was the last time there was this organic unity to European and because he, I'm sure he's talking about the United States as well, European adjacent civilizations. And once that broke up, cultures started spinning out on their own and inevitably became more and more individualistic and detached from any sort of true objective truth. Mm, mm, yes. And you see, not, not only are we getting a fragmentation of peoples and of languages, but also of even disciplines within those individual societies, like how art and culture and politics have all, all disaggregated, where they should be a unified organic whole. Yes, and he, he describes the um, situation where in, yes. in page, on page 152. He says, Precisely because an organic type of civilization no longer exists, Precisely because the processes of disillusion have penetrated every realm of existence, all of that has ceased to exist. Today, we seem fated to have the alternative, false and deleterious in itself, of either a neutral art and culture devoid of every higher warrant and meaning, or of an art and culture subject to pure and simple degraded political forces, as in the case, as is the case in totalitarian systems and chiefly in those informed by theories of Marxist realism and the corresponding polemic against the decadence and alienation of bourgeois art. And that's where we are. Yeah, that's exactly where we are. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I see it, you see it, my dog sees it. All right, where are we going from here? All right, from here, I was quiet for a bit because my... <laughs> One of my one of my headphones started playing up, but it's okay. Um, <laughs> okay. He complains about modern art a lot. Actually, I've got one quote where he describes what a civilization should be, oh. and that might be instructive for yeah. people who 
who still haven't listened to our excellent episode <laughs> on Revolt Against the Modern World, where he says, The opposite condition, the normal and creative one, is not that of a culture at the service of the state and of politics, politics in the degraded modern sense. It is that in which a unique idea, the basic and central symbol of a given civilization, shows its strength and exerts a parallel positive action, often invisible, both on the political plane, with all the values, not just the material ones, that should concern every true state, and on that of thought, culture, and the arts. It excludes any major schism or antagonism between the two realms, as well as any need for outside intervention. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So... Okay, um... All right. I feel like I'm running out of steam a little bit here. <laughs> All right. Now, we've described what a perfect uh, civilizational culture, you know, one and the same thing, uh, consists of. Uh, where to next? We've got a chapter on the dissolution, on dissolution and modern art. Um, do you want to talk about modern music and jazz and then uh, drug taking? Modern art. Let's talk about modern art. Um, Evola just regarded it as a degradation where because of the, the direction of history and that because we're at the terminal stage of it, modern art is just purely subjective, obsessed with interiority and the internal lives of extremely boring people because they're not integrated. Mm. There's just, there's not much to it. So in the West, there's the obsession with individuality. And then Evola was writing at a time when the Soviet Union still existed. So for him, the Marxist world was just as boring because Marxist realism was just propaganda for a a false god, for something that was was proposing the socioeconomic myth of human history and for a crude totalitarianism based on the masses. Mm. There was not really anything that he liked about modern art, apart from that some of it was so nihilistic that the integrated man might be able to meditate on it and and experience it and use that experience in their Dionysian lucid intoxication to nourish themselves, <laughs> but <laughs> he just didn't like it. Uh, uh, but d- does he does he juxtapose what he doesn't like about modern art or music with a traditional form of art and music? I mean, one assumes that it needs to have some kind of organic, complete connection to the world of being and, you know, traditional rights must have some kind of relation to a caste system or a proper sense of order. Yeah. But does he get more specific than that? No. <laughs> no, he doesn't. He doesn't. It has to be integrated with the organic whole of society, but he doesn't actually tell you what that looks like. <laughs> I would say there is a, he does have a quote on page 158, which is the one good thing he has to say about modern art. Mm. One has to go beyond both positions that of the moralizers and that of the proponents of this corrosive art whose transitional and primitive forms are destined to exhaust themselves, leaving for some a void and for others the free space for a higher realism. (laughs) 
I should also add for context to that quote that the moralizers, he talks about how a reactionary position of trying to push art back to what it was is not worthwhile because one, history only ever moves in the direction of degradation until a cycle ends and we get another <laughs> golden age. And also because these reactionaries want to return to bourgeois art, which is itself a perversion and degradation from, from an organic art. <laughs> the next bit, though, on modern music and jazz is really good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he really... He, he just hates jazz. <laughs> yeah. Evelyn distinguishes two, two streams in the development of modern music. One is the intellectualization, where the cerebral element prevails and focuses on harmony, the extreme of which is, the, is, is 12-tone music. So he didn't like Schoenberg. Of course. The, the other, the other I mean, neither do I. And the other stream is, is the physical, mm. which is increasingly earthly and a returning to nature yep. and a focus on rhythm. And he regarded the the furthest reaches of this as jazz. I do not know what he would have thought of music today, which <laughs> jazz is quite intellectual compared to much of the music I listen to. Yeah, I just, I just, do you remember that the Island Boys? I don't know where they disappeared to, but for a while they, they, they were like Z-grade internet celebrities on the basis of that, that one TikTok. They both look like pineapples standing in a paddle pool. Rapping about being island boys. I'm, I'm, I wonder what Evola would have made I'm of I'm very them. sorry to say that I have not had the pleasure of their acquaintance. Well, I mean, that's on you. <laughs> <laughs> not everyone can be as cultured as I am. <laughs> yeah. Okay. But what, what's the connection between um, jazz, Africans, <laughs> and degradation? <laughs> <laughs> there is a connection. So... <laughs> Aside from their frequent yeah, use Evel- of drugs, Evel- 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 views Evel- views that views jazz as the extreme of this physical telluric music. Mm-hmm. He calls it as he he has the problem that it's not from it's not originally a European music. He says that it's from the lower and more exotic races. It's a, it's a <laughs> he also says. Jazz is undeniably an aspect of the resurfacing of the elemental in the modern world, bringing the bourgeois epoch to its dissolution. <laughs> he, and it seems one of his primary problems with jazz is its syncopated rhythms. Mm. Um, and <laughs> this, is a, this is a long quote, but a, a very important quote, extremely important. In fact... It is known that African music, <laughs> I want to reinforce his, his use of the phrase, it is known that African music, the origin of the principal rhythms of modern dances, has been one of the major techniques used to open up people to ecstasy and possession. <laughs> Both Alphonse Dower and Ortiz have rightly seen the characteristic of this music as its polyrhythmic structure, developed in such a way that the static on-beat accents that mark the rhythm, constantly act as ecstatic, offbeat accents. (laughs) Hence, the special rhythmic figures that generate attention intended to feed an uninterrupted ecstasy. (laughs) The same structure has been preserved in all so-called syncopated jazz. 
These syncopations are like delays that tend to liberate energy or generate an impulse, a technique used in African rites to induce possession of the dancers <laughs> by certain entities. The Arisha of the Yoruba or the Loa of the Voodoo of Haiti who took over their personalities and rode <laughs> So, Evola does... He makes, makes sure to say that in jazz music, this syncopated power is desacralized, so it probably won't leave you open to possession. But it, it's a risk. It's a risk that you're taking each time you listen to John Coltrane, each time you put on Pat Metheny, you might get possessed. <laughs> yeah, because because <laughs> because Evel is a practical man. He cares about. It. He doesn't want you to be possessed. Yeah, because because though uh, there is a process of dissociation, of abstract development, of rhythmic forms separated from the whole to which they originally belonged. Okay, so removal mm, again mm. from the whole. And he he later says that the obsessive reiteration of a rhythm prevails similar to the use of the African tom-tom, causing, <laughs> causing paroxysmal <laughs> contortions of the body and inarticulate <laughs> screams in the performers, while the mass of the listeners join in, hysterically shrieking and throwing themselves around, creating a collective climate similar to that of the possessions of savage ritual and certain dervish sects, or the makumba and the Negro religious revivals. <laughs> and then he starts talking about drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the, the chapter Excursus on Drugs, basically his almost all of this is saying that, okay, young people use use drugs to to escape the monotony and emptiness of modern life. Mm. And that drugs were once used in trad societies as part of rituals, but they're desacralized now. He's got this quote, With drugs, we have a similar situation to that of syncopated music. (laughs) Both were often transpositions onto the profane and physical plane, of means that were originally used to open one up to the suprasensible in initiation rites mm. or similar experiences, just as dances to modern syncopated music derive from ecstatic fella dance. As an aside, I will substitute the word fella for any racial slurs. <laughs> the various drugs used today and created in laboratories correspond to drugs that were often used for sacred ends in primitive populations, according to ancient traditions. <laughs> <laughs> and then then though the the interesting part of this chapter is where he starts talking about how the integrated man might be able to use drugs productively mm. and it, it just gets really fucking weird <laughs> so, we got a bit we've got some evola maths here so yeah. he says on page 168 regarding how an integrated man could use drugs productively. He says, so in, in, what happens with, with a normal person is that the drugs obliterate their being. Their being collapses and they, they experience it passively, whereas the integrated man maintains a sense of being and enjoys drugs actively. So when your <laughs> integrated man is 
smoking ice in revolver at 6am <laughs> on a Tuesday morning. Yep. He's doing it from the basis of his being. Evola says, For the process to proceed differently, it would go schematically as follows. At the point in which the drug frees energy X in an exterior way, an act of the self, of being, brings its own double energy, <laughs> X plus X, into the current and maintains it up to the end. <laughs> Similarly, a wave, even if unexpected, serves a skilled swimmer with whom it collides by propelling him beyond it. Thus, yeah. there would be no collapse. The native would be transformed, the, the negative would be transformed into a positive. No condition of passivity would be formed with respect to the drug. The experience, in a certain way, would be deconditioned, and, as a result, one would not undergo an ecstatic dissolution, devoid of any true opening beyond the individual, and only sustained by sensations. <laughs> so, so long as you approach drugs in the right... Or, okay, certain types of drugs in the right way, with the appropriate disposition, uh, you can ride them like a wave... I guess, but uh, but that would presuppose a certain orientation of your body. Of course, he doesn't like body. A certain uh, orientation mm. of your being, such that it might help you or amplify it. But um, you can't take them passively and expect some kind of revelation or result. You know, you need to be a what was the earlier phrase? The um, not the extreme person, not the authentic person. <laughs> The something person. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I can't fucking... <laughs> whatever. Yeah. We've been recording for almost four hours. <laughs> he does, though... He divides up drugs into four yeah. categories. Uh, it's, 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 what, st stimulants, depressants, psychedelics, and narcotics, and ignores the first two yeah. of those and says, no, they're all useless. We need not talk so about actually, them. I said earlier the integrated man smoking ice. So the integrated man wouldn't be smoking ice. No. Um, so, okay. So that, 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 that's me misunderstanding Evola. <laughs> Instead, he'd be, he'd be popping Oxycontin or <laughs> smoking DMT. Because yeah. he does talk about... He talks about psychedelics mm. and says that they were used by some trade societies in good ways. However, in the, in the modern world... You should be pretty careful of them because they can open you up to your, your psychic substratum. And I quote, even driving some compulsively to commit criminal acts. <laughs> he, he also discusses narcotics and has this a, a quote about narcotics <laughs> on page 170 where yep. he says, there remains... There remains the category of narcotics and of substances that are also used for total anesthesia whose normal effect is the complete suspension of consciousness. This corresponds to, the, to a detachment that would exclude all intermediate psychedelic forms and the insidious ecstatic and sensual contents leaving a void. However, if consciousness were maintained with the pure eye at the centre, it could facilitate the opening to a higher reality, but the advantages would be outweighed by the extreme difficulty of any training capable of maintaining detached consciousness. 
So Evola probably K-holed himself a few times <laughs> and liked it. Yeah, yeah. We, we, and said that this is how people should take drugs. Which, yeah, because, I mean, in the very next paragraph, he does again offer sensible, sane, sober advice to the modern drug taker. He says, in general, one must keep in mind that drug use, even for a spiritual end, that is, to catch glimpses of transcendence, has its price. How drugs produce certain psychic effects has not yet been determined by modern science. It is said that some, like LSD, destroy certain brain cells. One point is certain. Habitual use of drugs brings a certain psychic disorganization. One should substitute for them the power of attaining analogous states through one's own means. Therefore, when one has chosen a path based on the maximum unification of all one's psychic faculties, these drawbacks must be kept firmly in mind. Yeah, that's in my McKinsey report. I do say best not to take drugs and you know, to, to meditate yourself to those forms of consciousness instead. But if you have to, just hoof big fat lines <laughs> of ketamine because that's the, that's the best way to, to not open yourself up to the psychic substratum and compulsively commit criminal acts. <laughs> Yeah. But also you suspend, <laughs> you suspend your sense of self. So, yeah, that uh, practical advice for the practical man. Yeah, okay. But um, just... What about... Uh, just, uh, just before we yeah. finish up on drugs, on a practical level, um, what modern drugs in our, you know, degraded day and age would Evola approve of? I mean, you mentioned K <laughs> him K-holing himself earlier. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Which which drugs do you think that Evola might approve of, given a certain um, uh, a certain ennobled predisposition? Like you were taking them in the right mm. way. Which ones might help, like a surfer riding a wave to propel yourself forward to the realm of being? <laughs> probably the opiates, I reckon, because those can those also <laughs> narcotize you. So, yeah, Evelyn might have approved of taking OxyContin or something like that for <laughs> spiritual, non-recreational purposes. <laughs> what about maybe propofol as well? That's just, that's just an anaesthetic. I should say this is a perfect point for Levi to have re-entered the room. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think most general anaesthetics Evola would probably get around if he could train himself to the point to maintain some some unity of being while he was anaesthetized. <laughs> okay, okay. I think we've 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 done we've done drugs. So I think we're you know, we're getting to the We're on the home stretch. We're on <laughs> Now, of course, there are, I mean, look, there's various chapters, but we can talk about marriage and the family, relations between the sexes, inevitably, before we um, get on to the closing segment, which discusses, you know, modern attempts at the spiritual and um, the concept of death. Uh, presuming we don't want to hit every single one of these subjects, uh, where do you want to take us next, Jack? How about, very briefly, he's got this th thing about a politeer, which is a posture towards politics that the integrated man should state should take oh this is which practical, is basically though. that yeah yeah this is practical i've got a really long quote where he just sums up the entire chapter okay shoot where mm, okay so <laughs> it is important to emphasize that this principle refers essentially to the inner attitude 
In the present political situation, in a climate of democracy and socialism, the rules of the game are such that the man in question absolutely cannot take part in it. He recognises, as I've said before, that ideas, motives and goals worthy of the pledge of one's own true being do not exist today. There are no demands of which he can recognise any moral right and foundation outside that which they derive as mere facts on the empirical and profane plane. However, apolitia detachment does not necessarily involve specific consequences in the field of pure and simple activity. I have already discussed the capacity to apply oneself to a given task for love of action in itself and in terms of an impersonal perfection. So, in principle, there is no reason to exclude the political realm itself as a particular case among others, since participating in it on these terms requires neither any objective value of a high order nor impulses that come from emotional and irrational layers of one's own being. But if this is how one dedicates oneself to political activity, clearly all that matters is the action and the impersonal perfection in acting for its own sake. Such political activity, for one who desires it, cannot present a higher value and dignity than dedicating oneself, in the same spirit, to quite different activities, absurd colonisation projects, speculations on the stock market, science, and even, to give a drastic example, arms traffic or white slavery. <laughs> so, a politia. Basically, it's just, it's acting beyond good and evil, considering the political realm as a realm that is no different from any other sphere of activity. You, you, you act in it according to a law emerging from one's own being, existing within the world of being. And it's just as meaningless as any other material, inorganic, non-objective pursuit that you could follow. The only thing that it is worth while in is in some sense Evola's distinction between the greater and lesser holy wars. Mm. The greater holy war is overcoming oneself and drawing oneself into transcendence and the world of being through the mechanism of the lesser holy war, the external act in this case, through politics. <laughs> That's kind of the whole chapter. That's there's not much more. It's 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 practical, highly practical, but a more more an, an example of of previous things we have discussed. Yeah, I mean, he he closes the chapter by saying, in any case, the general situation characterized by Nietzsche remains: the struggle for supremacy amidst conditions that are worth nothing, the civilization of great cities. Newspapers, fever, uselessness, such is the framework that justifies the inner imperative of a politeia to defend the world of being and dignity of him who feels himself belonging to a different humanity and recognizes the desert around himself. So it's sort of a negative yeah. orientation towards politics. And uh, this is where I might ask you does this. Again, given that I think you mentioned this is the last book of Evola's and it was written in 1960 or so, does this, uh, does this show any sort of evolution in his thinking uh, from previous texts? No. <laughs> no, well, all of his thinking is based in a timeless and objective world of being, so why would there be evolution? <laughs> it's, just, it's just absurd. It's a complete absurdity. <laughs> Then he's going to change his mind. <laughs> what the fuck's wrong with I you? I dismiss your question thus. 
what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Get real. <laughs> and, and then the next chapter on society and the crisis of patriotic feeling is sort of the same. It's him just saying that that you only get things like patriotism or nationalism arising once you've had a degradation of a nice trad empire. <laughs> and so patriotism is a dumb bourgeois feeling for stupid people. Yeah. And so it doesn't matter that there's a crisis of patriotic feeling, that you know, smelly hippies don't feel wedded to their particular country of birth. Well, who cares? Because the, the integrated man is above all that anyway. Yeah, yeah, because because any kind of patriotic or nationalistic feeling is, as he said, as he says, uh, they ha- they have their relation into to dissociated and formless realities by way of the negation of any true hierarchical principle and of any symbol or warrant of a transcendent transcendent authority. Mm. Mm. Yep. All right, marriage and oh. family. Marriage and family and the relation between the sexes. These were these were fun fun chapters. <laughs> I was looking forward to them and Evela delivered. Because <laughs> he doesn't so, like Catholic marriage, does he? No, he spends a lot of time complaining about Catholic marriage. Mm. But before getting to the particulars, we need we need to to identify the fundamental problem with marriage. So he was writing about a time when a lot of people were getting divorced. There was this feeling of a crisis of, of the family, which is really just the crisis of the bourgeois family, which is itself a degraded form of true family. Evola has diagnosed the problem as such of, of the, the, why, why the family is falling apart inevitably. Above all, its essential fulcrum has disappeared, which was constituted by the primarily spiritual authority of its head, the father. That is, shown by the etymological meaning of the word pater, as lord or sovereign. At this rate, one of the principal goals of the family, procreation, is reduced to the mere mindless propagation of one's bloodline. Propagation, moreover, that is promiscuous, given that with modern individualism, any limitation of conjugal unions by stock, caste, and race has collapsed, and given that, in any case, it is no longer it no longer has a counter, as a counterpart the most essential continuity, that is, the transmission of a spiritual influence, a tradition, and an ideal heritage from generation to generation. So, it's marriage no longer exists as a virile man organising the being of those beneath him in the family Mm. and existing to pass on a spirituality within a caste system. No, now we have have mixing between all sorts of people. We no longer regulate who can can reproduce with whom. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Therefore, all that marriage serves, all that procreation serves, is just creating more humans who are disconnected from the world of being. Yes, yes, because I think, I think one of his, his gripes is, is that it's Catholic marriage, for instance, involves a completely vulgar biological reductionism. I mean, you're simply propagating yeah. your own line. And I think also part of the thing, I mean, he would have a, a gripe with the notion of Catholicism in general, because I can't remember the etymology of the word Catholic, but 
in its ordinary usage to be Catholic is to be sort of all-encompassing, universal, open to new people, open to new ideas, mm. etc. So by its very definition, it is universal and also universally wrong. Yeah, yeah. And this is where he gets his antinatalism from as well, <laughs> that... <laughs> there's no there's no point having biological kids at least he does leave open the possibility of the ultimate cuckolding of taking someone else's biological children and becoming their spiritual father <laughs> so this is like a virile the ultimate objective cuckolding in the world of being <laughs> so he leaves open that that possibility to the differentiated man. However, he does say that the circumstances within which that sort of thing could happen are quite unlikely. Therefore, it's probably not practical to pursue <laughs> the, the spiritual cuckolding. He doesn't use that term. But I'm, I'm updating Evola's vocabulary for the modern world. <laughs> I'm just imagining like going on to Pornhub and searching traditional spiritual cuckolding. <laughs> How many hits? <laughs> <laughs> Levi, Google that for us, would you? I'm not Googling that. Yeah, he, uh, he does, he he does say that you, you, could, you could achieve this higher I mean, idea of marriage as, as a sacred and indissoluble union. Between two very special people, if you have an integrated man and a woman who he, who is metaphysically revolving around him uh, by by pursuing the ascetic path of the lover, who would be willing to die when he dies? <laughs> Someone who is who finds it unnatural to outlive her husband. But again, that's we'll get onto the state of modern women in a moment. <laughs> And you'll understand why that is very unlikely. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Is there anything more we need to say about marriage and the family before we move on to the state of modern women? <laughs> no, I think he's. We understand how he has derived his antinatalism. Yeah. Which is important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Evola, Evola and many parts of the modern environmentalist movement have some common ground. Hopefully that will lead to an Evolian transformation of the environmentalist movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I get, I, One can only this, hope. This, again, is the intersection between woo-woo fascism and eco-fascism. So, I mean, it's got a practical application. And I think to any leftists that are listening, um, you could do worse than use Evola as your guide to the modern world. <laughs> yeah, we don't need to get into the finer points of his disagreements about the Catholic idea of marriage. Yeah. Yeah. He spends a lot of time on that. <laughs> yeah, he <laughs> a lot of time. He really hates What he should have spent more time on is how to spiritually cuckold someone. Be the practical guide. <laughs> well, that's why he's left it to, to his um his epigones on the book club from hell to flesh out <laughs> these um, interesting, important, and very practical dimensions of his work. You know, he can't have covered all territory. 
there must be some truth <laughs> this left. Neo Evolianism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Neo Evolianism. <laughs> giving a schema for spiritual cognitive <laughs> and intellectual schema. <laughs> 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 Turn this into the neo volley now. <laughs> All right, Jack, to lead us into relations between the sexes. I mean, insofar as that wasn't covered already by the chapter on marriage and the family. <laughs> so this section's mostly about sex. Oh, <laughs> and Evela's written. Evela wrote a whole book on the. The transcendent aspects of sex, which I haven't read, so a lot of this made less sense to me than the rest of the book. But he talks about how how theistic morality is leading to complexes around sex, mm. and that sex really isn't a measure, or one's sex life isn't a measure of whether they're a differentiated man or not, at least not in that, say, <laughs> if you cheat on someone, that's morally bad. It's only if you allow a woman to, to control you, then that's bad because a virile man's not meant to let that happen. <laughs> that, that, that would be like the, ex, like, I don't know, the periphery of a circle controlling your centre. It just, like, doesn't make sense. Exactly, exactly. Clearly, the says Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be like an arm of the swastika controlling the middle. It's <laughs> <laughs> just, just not done. <laughs> and look what happens when you try He does happen. say... <laughs> I've already indicated the principles of a greater morality that being dependent on a kind of interior race cannot be damaged by nihilistic disillusions. These include truth, justice, loyalty, inner courage, the authentic, socially unconditioned sentiment of honour and shame, control over oneself. These are what are meant by virtue. Sexual acts have no part in it except indirectly and only when they lead to a behaviour that deviates from these values so, look, Evelyn's very sex positive. Yeah. Sex can be a way to, to access the transcendent, which we're not doing at the moment because bourgeois sexuality views sex purely physical he, he, as an animal impulse. But you probably... The, the integrated man should be very careful about using sex in a transcendent way because women are really dangerous and they can lead him off his path. And you, know, you, you, you wouldn't want that. He, um, I'll try to find the quote where he talks, talks about the, the danger of women, of the absolute woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, he does say, he does say, um, oh. The aspects of the crisis of female modesty are another part of this. Beside the cases in which almost full female nudity feeds the atmosphere of abstract collective sexuality, we should consider those cases in which nudity has lost every serious functional character, cases which by their habitual public character almost engender an involuntary chaste glance that is capable of considering a fully undressed girl with the same aesthetic disinterest as observing a fish or a cat. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? 
I'm not even sure what that means. I just like the fish and cat uh, comparison. <laughs> All right, but 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 okay, but elaborate more fully for us the dangers of feminine sexuality, Jack. So, feminine sexuality as ex- as it exists in our world is is his problem with it is not what bourgeois moralizers would have with it. He of Evel, of course, doesn't like that female sexuality has just become another consumption product mm. because it's, it means that women aren't fulfilling their roles as absolute women who can help, help others and themselves achieve transcendence through the sexual act. I don't understand how that happens, and I think it's just in another book of Evelyn. <laughs> For a later episode. <laughs> <laughs> Levi's nodding his head enthusiastically. <laughs> Can't get enough. I, I, found a great, I found a great quote here. By adding the products of commercialised mass pornography, the polarity between the sexes is diluted, as seen in the conduct of modern life, where the youth of both sexes are everywhere intermingled, promiscuously and unaffectedly, with almost no tension, as if they were turnips and cabbages <laughs> in a vegetable garden. That, so that, that wasn't related to what I was saying. I just really, I really enjoyed that comparison. The only reason why men and women can be with each other in the workplace with no polarity or sexual tension is because everyone's watching too much porn. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's all there is to it. <laughs> oh shit okay um all right but just to close out the chapter um he, he talks about profound sexual possibilities he, he talks about in the current situation for the type that concerns us the prospect of the use of more profound sexual possibilities in freer and clearer relationships between men and women can only occur in rare, unexpected cases. Apart from this, considering the current processes and their effects, the only ones of value to him are those disintegrating ones that may help to separate the realms and which articulate the principles belonging to a higher life, higher law of life than the preceding sexual morality, lacking anything better he takes stock of the free space that is opened when important sexual and erotic matters are rendered less important, though not discounting what they can offer on their own level. Okay, I was actually reaching for something mm. that made sense then, and I don't know what that means. Do you know what that means, Jack? <laughs> Do you reckon that could be a reason for, for not calling someone back after <laughs> if you just If you tell her, listen, mate, I only slept with you to separate the realms. I don't <laughs> this was this was an exercise in realm separation yeah yeah and she'll nod her head and go like yeah yeah because i as, get it as, as levi pointed out in the earlier episode on evola women are flighty flaky <laughs> don't return your calls but you know this is an instance where it might be legitimate where you can say to a woman yes i only fucked you to separate the realms. <laughs> to separate the realms oh, being from the realm becoming. <laughs> the realms having been separated, I no longer need you. Yeah, yeah. So that's like a um, oh, a form of spiritually justified jack arsery. <laughs> spiritual fuckboy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> spiritual yeah. fuckboy. <laughs> 
listen, you are only here as nourishment for my Dionysian lucid intoxication. <laughs> lucid intoxication. <laughs> at, at, at that point, she puts her clothes back on and leaves. Yeah. <laughs> Could that be a potential, like, you know, um, legal justification for sexual malfeasance? If you said that, yes, I was intoxicated, but I was lucidly intoxicated. And that... Um, engenders in your actions a different um, character, would might you say? Yeah, <laughs> I was acting from Try the world the of being. Yeah. <laughs> it becomes precedent in <laughs> If you are acting from Dionysian lucid intoxication, then anything you do is permitted. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So, okay. To close off the book, in chapters 29 and 30, we talk about the second religiosity, and then, of course, we talk about death. Um, so, the second, relig- religi- the second religiosity, um, I think, refers to, or at least he refers to the, um, I don't know, recrudescence of vulgar spiritualism in the modern world. Uh and I think basically yeah. he fundamentally views this as a form of escapism uh, and that it's overly too democratic and removed from the kinds of rights that would once have given it um, a significance in the realm of being. Would that be about right, Jack? Yeah, so he, he borrows the term second religiosity from Oswald Spengler. <laughs> Someone will probably end up covering on this podcast. Yeah, we've got requested a few times. Spangler is on the... Is yeah, on the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's much longer than this book, too. Uh. So, <laughs> so he, he identifies what he calls neo-spiritualism, mm. what Levi and I would call woo-woo, yep. and have covered several times on this Our podcast, <laughs> is, is, is this spirituality which is fragmented, inorganic, that borrows parts of of traditional religions that make absolutely no demands on an individual, but at least in the modern context, allow you to buy all sorts of crystals and knickknacks from snake oil salesmen so that you feel like you're doing something for your eternal soul. And Spengler regarded it as something that happens in the terminal phase of a civilization's life cycle. When these forms appear, a civilization is heading for its end. And He's got some really good comments about neo-spiritualists. Mm. Um, where are we? Well, at one point he, he, he compares the um, negative effects of neo-spiritualism to the obviously and apparent negative effects of scientific knowledge. Yeah. So, I mean, neo-spiritualism for the, for the most part is, well, harmless in that it in and of itself is not causing society to degrade. It's a symptom of a degrading society. Mm. However, he does quote Rene Gunon <laughs> or reference Rene Gunon in talking about a, da- a danger of neo-spiritualism. He says, Here one may well speak with Gunon of fissures of, in the Great Wall, dangerous faults in that protecting barrier that, despite everything, protects every normal and sound-minded person in ordinary life. Mm from the action of genuine dark forces that are hidden behind the facade of the sense world and beneath the threshold of sound and conscious human thoughts. So even though you've, you've just picked and chosen 
these little snippets of other spiritualities, those might have enough residual power to open you up to dark forces. There is also there is an excellent quote that basically sums up his, his, his view of neo-spiritualism on page 210 where he says, Nothing is more indicative of the level of this neo-spiritualism than the human material of the majority of those who cultivate it. <laughs> While the ancient sciences had the prerogative of a superior humanity drawn from the royal and priestly castes, today's new anti-materialist gospel is bandied about by mediums, popular maguses, dowsers, spiritists, anthroposophists, newspaper astrologers and seers, theosophists, healers, popularizers of an Americanized yoga, and so forth, accompanied by a few exalted mystics and ex extemporizing prophets. Mystification and superstition are constantly mingled in neo-spiritualism, another of whose typical traits, especially in Anglo-Saxon countries, is the high percentage of women, women who are failures, dropouts, or quote-unquote, past it. In fact, <laughs> its general orientation may well be described as a feminine spirituality. Yeah, yeah. There's what you need to know. <laughs> yeah. Actionable insight. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to... Um, I've got something <laughs> underlined, but I'm like, I'm really... Uh, I'm, I'm struggling to contextualize what he's saying here. Like, I know it's important, but I'm just struggling to like wrap my head around the context. <laughs> um, oh, okay, wait, 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 wait. I think uh, I think I know what I'm I'm on about here. Uh, he he's talking he's talking about uh, why one cannot necessarily why one shouldn't flirt with uh, engaging in rites that one doesn't fully understand. Um, mm. So this is on page two hundred and fourteen, and I might be butchering the surrounding context, but he says. If initiation is taken in its highest metaphysical sense, one must assume a priori that it is not even a hypothetical possibility in an epoch like the present, in an environment like the one we live in, and also given the general inner formation of individuals, now feeling the fatal effect of a collective ancestry that for centuries has been absolutely unfavourable. Anyone who sees things differently either does not understand the matter or else is deceiving himself and others. What has to be negated most decisively <laughs> is the transposition to this field of the individualistic and democratic view of the self-made man. That is, the idea that anyone who wants can become an initiate and that he can also become one on his own through his own strength alone by resorting to various kinds of exercises and practices. This is an illusion, the truth being that through his own strength alone, the human individual cannot go beyond human individuality and that any positive result in this field is conditioned by the presence and action of a genuine power of a different non-individual order. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, we talked, we hinted at this earlier where Evola seems to be saying that there are multiple levels there is a hierarchy of initiation yeah. the apex of which is metaphysical initiation which is not possible anymore because that was predicated upon having someone of the right stock mm. being initiated 
But that's no longer possible because of Miss Sedgwick. Yeah, 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 right, yeah, yeah. So the best we can hope for, and the best that a, a prospective tiger rider can hope for, is a lesser form of initiation. And this is what I, would, I think we said it quite a bit earlier, a few hours ago, <laughs> where there are, there are three different ways that you can undergo this, this initiation. So one is if you just have this innate, he calls it innate dignity or something like that, where you're just born open to above. And he said that just doesn't really happen anymore. The third way he mentions is being initiated by someone else. And he said that also just doesn't happen anymore because we don't have those institutions. But the second way is the only way that's possible, where you, you prepare yourself spiritually by... Living without, living without reference to external morals by being yourself mm. and acting without action and acting without consequences. And in that way, you, you are prepared to undergo an ontological fracture through some sort of spiritual crisis. And all you can really do is prepare yourself for that spiritual crisis and then leave the chance of that spiritual crisis occurring you leave it up to a a higher wisdom yep yep he says you that's that's all you can do well he he actually refers to it as you know well at the close of the chapter he refers to it as the realistic view he says a realistic view of the situation (laughs) realistic view A realistic view of the situation. <laughs> Let's be pragmatic here. A realistic view of the situation and an honest self-evaluation indicate that the only serious and essential task today is to give ever more emphasis to the dimension of transcendence in oneself, more or less concealed as it may be. Study of traditional wisdom and knowledge of its doctrines may assist, but they will not be effective without a progressive change affecting the existential plane, and more particularly, the basic life force of oneself as a person. That force that for most people is bound to the world and is simply the will to live. Okay, so that's a realistic, Mm. honest self-evaluation of the serious and essential task facing the modern male today. That's another... McKinsey action. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just footnote 412 in your report. Bang, got it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Final chapter, home stretch. Oh. How to die <laughs> and how to live with respect to death. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So he returns to the theme of Heidegger here as well. And again, I might be wrong here, but my earlier... The, the apprehension which I earlier expressed was that what he disliked about Heidegger was that it necessitated some kind of subjective component or subjective response for Dasein as it approached death. I think he thinks that that is all wrong. Um, yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm losing my way. <laughs> says that the integrated man should see death as a challenge Mm -hmm. and challenge themselves to regard it with detached calm. I should probably contextualize all of this with, (laughs) because he he discusses suicide and things like that. Mm. Throughout this chat, at the end of this chapter, he mentions a bold hypothesis, (sighs) 
And um, I'll read out the bold hypothesis. So on the last page of the book, I think this is the final paragraph. If one can allow one's mind to dwell on a bold hypothesis, which could also be an act of faith in a higher sense, once the idea of Geworfenheit, which is uh, Heidegger's idea of throneness, is rejected, once it is conceived that living here and now in this world has a sense because it is always the effect of a choice and a will, one might even believe that one's own realisation of the possibilities I have indicated far more concealed and less imaginable in other situations that might be more desirable from the merely human point of view. From the point of view of the person is the ultimate rationale and significance of a choice made by a being that wanted to measure itself against a difficult challenge, that of living in a world contrary to that consistent with its nature, that is, contrary to the world of tradition. <laughs> so Evola's bold proposal here is that our, we, we have a pre-existence. We have some entity exists before our lives and has elected to exist as a human during the Kali Yuga. And that might be so that it can challenge itself. And so how you should live with the knowledge that you will die should be informed by this knowledge of the Evolian bold proposal that your <laughs> whatever pre-existed you chose the difficulties of human existence as a challenge. Therefore, you should approach your life as a challenge, as a way to demonstrate that you are still transcendent and connected to the world of being. Yes, yes, absolutely. And on, on and page 221, he makes an important... Absolutely. He makes an important... He uses an important phrase here, which I underlined, transcendental confidence. So he says... I will limit myself to showing that the valid attitude toward the beyond is the same attitude that I proposed for life in general, that of a transcendental confidence, joined on one side by the heroic and sacrificial disposition, readiness to actively take oneself beyond oneself, on the other by one's capacity to dominate his soul, impulses and imagination. Just as one who, in a difficult and risky situation, does not lose control of himself, doing lucidly and without hesitation all that can be done. Through this, one should benefit from all the recommendations in the preceding pages. Recommendations <laughs> that could then be as valid beyond life as they are for life in the current epoch, beyond life. Last but not least, they include the disposition of being ready to bear lethal blows on one's own being without being destroyed. So it's, it comes down to transcendental confidence. Yeah. You approach your life and your death with transcendental confidence, knowing that your pre-existing being chose this life, chose to exist in the Kali Yuga as a test, <laughs> and also knowing that once you die, he uses the analogy of a train ride through the night, you get onto the train, the train ride is your life, and you, you capture brief glimpses of the landscape lit at night, but you know that you'll get off the train, but you'll continue to exist, and you'll see the journey that you've just taken. That's, uh, that's the evolving view of life. In terms of suicide, <laughs> he says that it's not in and of itself a bad thing. He invokes Seneca in talking about how that... 
you know, true men are above the gods themselves because men have to undergo suffering. And the, the greatest people are those able to bear the greatest misfortune, but also maintain their, their composure and their calm, collected attitude to the world. Well, it's it's to return it's, and it's so, to return to Hemingway, uh, you know, the courage at the broken place, <laughs> <laughs> to take us back to Year Twelve English. But <laughs> <laughs> the hidden Evola in the uh, Victorian uh, education curriculum. I really hope they start offering Evola. In this <laughs> <again>. Yeah. <laughs> But Evola says that, so from, from the perspective of Seneca, killing yourself because a situation seems unbearable is not acceptable because that is some sort of situation overcoming you instead of you come overcoming the situation. He does say, though, that he says, oh, here's the quote, it is a matter of the sovereign right that one always keeps in reserve to, ex- uh, to either accept these ordeals or not and even to draw the line when one no longer sees a meaning in them, and after having sufficiently demonstrated to oneself the capacity to face them. So in some way, if you've demonstrated to yourself that you could have overcome this situation and you don't see a meaning in it, maybe you could kill yourself. However, Evola then says, well, if your pre-existing being chose this life as some sort of mission, unless killing yourself is will fulfill that mission then you shouldn't do it so in terms of actionable insights whether to kill yourself or not from an evolian perspective it really will require you to delve into the the meaning behind why your pre-existing being chose to enter life during the kali yuga as a human being and whether that mission includes the suicide of this persona until you've done that then you you shouldn't commit suicide. That's the McKinsey actionable <laughs> from this chapter. I mean, look, fuck. There are so many actionable insights from this entire book, and we've <laughs> spent you know four hours or so discussing them. Four and a half. Hours <laughs> but okay, I feel like we need to probably uh, wrap wrap this one up for. But for tonight, I'm hitting the wall, <laughs> and it's 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 night time for you, so you're even worse off yeah. than me. Yeah, and and I've gotten beyond the point where I was I was earlier drunk, and now I'm back to just tired sobriety. <laughs> <laughs> Before I have to go to work tomorrow, <laughs> but I will go be able to go to work tomorrow with actionable insights. But Jack, okay, to take to compare your experience reading this to your experience of reading Revolt Against the Modern World. I mean, have you been able to fill in certain gaps in your knowledge that such that you feel yourself to be a more, I mean, I won't say convinced because I know you're convinced, a more thoroughly educated mm. um, and spiritual and elevated Evolian? I'd say for the most part, it was more revision of what I learned in Revolt Against the Modern World. Revolt Against the Modern World is a deeper and wider-ranging work mm. of Evolian insight, yeah. whereas this really is the... It's a pressy... It's, it's a summation of Evolian insights for someone who's practical, who's, who's hard at work in the real world but still wants some Evola guiding their hand. 
It's actually quite an enjoyable book if you're a particular type of person. Reading reading Evolian criticism of 19th and 20th century philosophers is funny, but... Ed, how was your experience being on Revolt... Revolt Against the Modern World? Being on Book Club from Hell for the first time and reading Evola for the first time. Was it really a truly satanic experience? Well, I mean, I must say... Hellish. (laughs) Especially the last 18 hours or so, I felt like my approach back when I was cramming for law school exams, (laughs) I was trying to cram as much Evola into my head as possible, underlining things, but not having a fundamentally coherent view of it. I feel that perhaps in this um <laughs> in this Socratic dialogue <laughs> I, I feel like I've gotten a little bit closer to the truth and at this point it's perhaps too early to say with with certainty that I feel ennobled but I suspect that when I wake tomorrow I will just you know the scales will have fell from my, fallen from my eyes and um Look, the experience has uh, been an overwhelmingly, I think, intellectually at this point, subjectively, I feel it tomorrow, a positive experience. And I think, um, you know, I'll, we'll be back to discuss the next book of Evola. This recording <laughs> oh, experience cool. was the ontological <laughs> rupture you needed to go from being a differentiated man living according to his own will to that of the ontologically transformed, integrated man, is what you wanted to say, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, um, that's yeah exactly I don't want to put right. words I mean, in I your wouldn't mouth, have expected that. That's no, no. That's but the that's feeling true. I'm I mean, getting. I have... <laughs> well, well, as we know, though, that there's objective. There's an objective, um, a transcendent truth that transcends either of our subjective experiences. And you've just hit the nail on the head. <laughs> like you've defined precisely what I've just undergone. I wouldn't have expected that my ontological rupture would occur at the top story of your parents' house. But there we have it. <laughs> <laughs> After next, hours, <laughs> next episode, Levi and I will be dis- will be exploring Don Paris PhD's SE five Odyssey. Yeah, fantastic! I can't wait to listen to it and not partake in it. <laughs> <laughs> I read the book over a month ago and I'm feeling pretty rusty on my Don Paris PhD knowledge, but look. I never know what I'm talking about on this show. <laughs> it might make a difference. No, well, look, uh, th- thank, thank you, Jack, for being my spiritual guide and shaman in this intellectual adventure. Um, as I say, I didn't know much know much about Evola to begin with. After it, I'm not really sure there's much to know, but um, there we have it. And it's been I feel real. like I've acted as a spiritual <laughs> father. I've been cuckolding your biological father <laughs> in some way. I'll I'll let Peter know. (laughs) Right. Stop recording. Stop recording. Stop recording.